Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and my bulldog, Rodney, is beside me as usual. We're continuing our Love Your Lawyer Month theme today with my friend Jason Darnell, who is a county attorney from Marshall County, Kentucky, and has been since 2018. Jason and I have known each other for close to 30 years, and we were high school classmates at Marshall County High School. Following graduation from Marshall County High School, Jason graduated from college at the University of Kentucky and law school from the Simon P. Chase Law School at Northern Kentucky University, all with high honors. Jason was also a member of the Law Review at Simon P. Chase, which is a big deal. Since that time, Jason has focused his legal practice in Kentucky, primarily in Marshall County, and he was recently named the 2020 Kentucky County Attorney of the Year. So congratulations, Jason. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So please welcome my friend Jason Darnold to Living the Dream. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, Ben. It's, uh, it's always nice to talk about some of my favorite subjects. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll this morning. Absolutely. Of course, I forgot to mention Jason and I are both big time University of Kentucky basketball fans and St. Louis Cardinal baseball fans. So we will be talking about that quite a bit today on Living the Dream. So before we get to the important stuff of UK basketball and Cardinal baseball, let's talk about the, your legal career. Um, so as part of Lawyer, Love Your Lawyer Month, I'm really had, uh, glad to have you on the show, and I'm really proud of your success as Marshall County's county attorney. What inspired you to become a lawyer, and why have you practiced law in Marshall County for almost your entire career? Well, let's start with uh, the first part of that question. It's actually... It's actually kind of a funny story, to be honest with you. I went to, when I got to college at UK, I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I spent the first couple, couple of three years just kind of enjoying the college life and taking classes and doing what my counselor told me to do without much thinking about, okay, what are you going to do when it's time to actually graduate and get out of here and find somebody who's going to pay you to do something? And so I was just kind of drifting through college, doing doing good. I mean, I made I made good grades and everything. So um, I was in this cu- curriculum, and I I reached a fork in the road. And so the the fork in the road was okay. You have to satisfy this requirement by either taking business calculus or logic and philosophy. Okay, so me being the uh, why would let's kill two birds with one stone? Why would I take two classes when I can satisfy this requirement of taking one. So mm-hmm. I enroll in business calculus. And the first day the, the uh, professor gets up on the board and starts writing some formulas and some equations on the board and said, okay, that's a nice review of what you should already know. And I'm sitting in the back room thinking, I, I don't have any idea what this guy's talking about. I said, I'm, I'm lost as an Easter egg. And so I made it maybe one or two more classes before I was like, you know, I'm going to fail this. I'm so far behind. Math is not my strong suit. So I have got to get enrolled in logic and philosophy 101. So um, I did, I did that. I got enrolled in logic and the professor, and I really liked logic. I mean, it's just a basic logic course and there's not really anything fancy to it. Um, But toward the end of that semester, um, the, the professor called me up after class one day and he said, uh, do you know what your average in this class is? And I said, no, I mean, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty well. And he said, you've got 102 average in this class. And 
you really, really ought to consider taking the LSAT and going to law school. And um, that's the first time that I ever really thought about it. I think I was a junior at the time. And um, so I, I did some more thinking on it. I, I, and I, I passed, of course, I passed my logic class with fine colors. I enjoyed my legal philosophy course as well. Um, took the LSAT and decided that's what I wanted to do. And the rest is kind of history. So that's, that's the kind of the, the story of how I ended up in law school and practicing law is my inability to even comprehend basic calculus and, uh, and complex math. So the old, the old story goes is lawyers don't do math. That's why we went to law school. And that's absolutely true with me. That's is absolutely the truth. Well, that, that's a good story there. But hey, at least you figured it out while you were in college. Some people don't figure it out until years down the road. Oh, yeah. And, you know, once I got to law school, that was really the first time in my whole life that I enjoyed school. Uh, mm. I enjoyed the social aspects of college like everybody else does. But as mm. far as going to class and reading and doing the homework, I mean, I, I just never, never liked it when I was in college or high school or even below. I just hated doing homework. I always did it because I knew my parents would kill me if I didn't. Mm. I'm thankful that they uh, uh, motivated me with with that. But once I got to law school, I really liked it. I mean, I really liked reading the cases, figuring out the rules that we talk about. And it was something that I really enjoyed. And it really, I mean, it was, it was for me. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's what uh, God put me on this earth to do, I believe. He gave me the ability to understand those legal concepts. And, uh, and I loved, I loved, I liked law school. I mean, it was hard mm-hmm. work. It wasn't always easy or fun. Mm-hmm. We're a really tight knit group in my class. I think we graduated with seventy six people. If I'm if I'm not oh mistaken. wow, and um, you know I got to know some lifelong friends that we I still stay in touch with. Mm-hmm. It was it was fun. I liked it. I liked law school a whole lot. That's good. Yeah, that is a small law school class, but like you said, I mean you you know everybody and you have contacts, which is a very valuable thing once you get out into to private practice. Yeah. So we, we all got we all got along too. I mean, it wasn't like there was a super competitive at Chase. It was it was a real tight knit group, and we supported each other, and you know, shared notes and all that kind of stuff. Study groups and all that all that good mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah. So what uh, brought you back to Marshall County to practice? Well, um, again, it was more like whether you want to call it fate or or the good Lord watching out for me, but. I think it was during my second year of law school, I started getting some interviews with some of the bigger firms in Cincinnati, Lexington, and Louisville. And I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. I'm going to go in and start making some real money right off the bat. Um, but, you know, none of those interviews really panned out. And mm-hmm. they didn't because uh, looking back on it now, I don't think I would have necessarily been happy living in a big city and kind of being the small fish in a, in a big pond up there and mm-hmm. um, trying to fight my way up the ladder um, because um, I ended up where I am now and I could, couldn't be happier. But out of, out of law school, I got the, um, the first job offer I, that I did get was from Rick Johnson, who was a court of appeals judge who mm-hmm. passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but I had clerked for him for two summers in law school. And mm-hmm. he said, man, I would love to have you for at least a year if you can, you can come back and work for me. And so that's what happened. I came back. Um, he, his office was in Graves County, which is just one county over from Marshall. Mm-hmm. So, and a great guy. I mean, just a tr- tremendous guy, 
a really smart judge. Uh, he, he and I got along great, a huge sports fan. He was a big Cardinals fan, big UK fan. He went oh. to Western, so he was a big Western Hill, uh, Kentucky Hilltopper fan too. Um, but I learned, I learned so much from him. I mean, it was just, uh, and, and we, we probably were probably diametrically opposed politically. Um, but, um, we would discuss issues, talk about them and, you know, clerking for an appellate court judge, uh, teaches you skills, reading and writing and thinking about things different ways, uh, that you really only can learn that type of stuff in that position. So it mm-hmm. was just totally invaluable experience. I'll never, never be able to repay him for that opportunity. And then uh, about a year into that, uh, Jeff Edwards called me at home one night, just out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it, hadn't reached out to him or anything. And he said, uh, well, Lisa Carter, my assistant, is um, wanting to cut back significantly on her working hours. And I'd like for you to come over and be my assistant. And um, I didn't really even have to think about it. I went to interview, I went to interview with him a couple of days later and I pretty much knew going in that I, this is what I was going to do. And so uh, doing that, being his assistant, I also got to uh, keep a, uh, or open, start a private practice. Mm-hmm. And so that really opened a lot of doors for me. And mm-hmm. once I got here, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, I've, I've been here ever since. So I'm in, I'm getting close to um, 17 years here at the county attorney's office, either as an assistant or as the elected county attorney. And mm-hmm. so it's something that, that I enjoy and um, I'm looking forward to hopefully many more years if the voters will, will have me. So, yeah, because you're in your, <clears throat> your first term as county attorney, um, getting elected in 2018. So I guess uh, what inspired you to run for county attorney and uh, kind of explain to the listeners what your role is as a county attorney. Well, county attorney is, uh, you know, for people not in Kentucky, um, it's kind of an unusual position, I guess, because in most states, prosecutors are referred to as district attorneys or assistant district attorneys. That's how most people think of the, the prosecutor's office there. But you know, primarily, we are a prosecutor's office. But the county attorney in Marshall, in, in Kentucky, county attorney wears a whole bunch of different hats because mm-hmm. we're also by statute, uh, legal representative for county government. And that includes all those little county government entities you know, the, we have to counsel the fire departments, the taxing districts, the health department, uh, the county clerk's office, uh, the circuit clerk's office, uh, you know, leans on us sometimes for, for advice and help. And obviously, we're closely involved with law enforcement in uh, after hours, providing some assistance there and, uh, you know, guidance on criminal cases. Uh, we do child support collection. We do uh, guardianships, which is a, a situation where an, an, an adult is uh, unable to take care of themselves and needs somebody to step in. So we help facilitate that process to get guardianships appointed. And then probably one of the most challenging aspects of the job and the most difficult and the, the one that probably tugs at your heart the most is that we do uh, DNA court. And that's not DNA in terms of uh, paternity, but DNA stands for de- dependency, neglect and abuse. And involves uh, children. So children mm-hmm. not being taken care of or even worse, uh, being intentionally abused or, or wantonly abused. And so we step in and work closely with the cabinet to make sure that those kids are removed from the harmful situation and put in the situation where they can thrive the best. So that's kind of a general overview of what the county attorney does. 
Um, the, and the name county attorney, often uh, times people think, well, the county attorney, that's the county's attorney. Mm-hmm. Now I can call and get free advice for anything that I want. And that's really not the case at all. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating too, because, uh, you know, pe- people call with, you know, all kinds of, I mean, you can't imagine the types of, types of questions that people call for. And they say, well, why can't you help me? And I said, well, you know, that's, that's, I have to, I have, I can only do what statutes let me do. And I, I cannot get involved in that situation. And it's frustrating to them. And I, and I understand, but um, I also have to protect myself from liability, protect this office from liability too. And just mm-hmm. as respectfully as I can, um, you know, decline to get involved in some situations. But uh, the reason that I enjoy this and wanted to run for county attorney and, and stuck around so long as assistant county attorney is really it's because of all those areas that that you're involved in. You know, it's not just going to court for traffic court, DUI and criminal court every day. It's a lot more than that. So mm-hmm. it keeps things fresh. Uh, it's it's a new day every day. Um, like any job, there is some redund- redundancy to it, but there's always something going on that's that you may not have ever seen before. And so that's that keeps it fresh and exciting and makes me want to come to the office every day. I, I, I enjoy coming to the office every day. And even during snow days and, and sick days, I, I still try to come in as much as I can mm-hmm. and and work. So I enjoy it. So the old saying is, if you enjoy what you're doing, it's not really work. And so and that's that's me. I enjoy what I'm doing. That's right. And, uh, you know, one thing with you being the county attorney now, your experience as the assistant county attorney. That was invaluable because you have a lot on your plate, a lot of responsibilities. And that's something that I don't think someone could just come in and not have that background that you did and be able to really do the job as well, because there's a lot to handle there. Oh, yeah. Um, It's a lot of responsibility. And, um, you know, unfortunately, back in back the year that I ran, we had our our tragic uh, school shooting. Yep, that was something that obviously I will never, never forget. Um, that's going to stick with me as uh, until the day that I die uh, mm-hmm. because of a n- number of different things. Uh, one being, you know, Jenny was there. My, Jenny's my wife. She's a teacher there at the high school. She uh, got there uh, just a little bit after the shooting started and thankfully was, was unharmed. And then I, I went out there, you know, the, the police, the phones were down that day. Uh, because of everybody trying to call. And so the law enforcement had a tough time getting a hold of me. And uh, finally, they just said, we just need you to come out to the school. And so I was actually at the school uh, within about 20, 30 minutes after it had ended and and saw it. So that, that those images, I'll, I'll never be able to get out of my head and, 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 you know, prosecuting the case. That was, that was the largest evidentiary case in the history of the Kentucky State Police was the Marsh County School shooting in terms of evidence and documents and uh, just a massive amount of work involved. And um, Dennis Faust ran and, and won Commonwealth Attorney of the Year the same year that I was elected County Attorney of the Year. And it, it was a it was a total team effort to, to prosecute that case. It was way, way more than any one person could, could have handled. So uh, it was all hands on deck. And mm. I'm glad that I had 15, 16 years of prosecutorial experience behind me before that happened, because that certainly came in handy. Right. Absolutely. You know, one thing with county attorney uh, in my role down in Vieira, I work very closely with the county attorney because they handle all the real estate matters for Brevard County and our developments, so water and sewer, 
installation roads and we have to get approvals through them. So I'm sure you have to deal with that in Marshall County when they're installing utility lines and roads. And so you got real estate, you got family law going on there, criminal law, a um, little bit of everything. Yeah. And that's, like I said earlier, that, that kind of keeps things fresh and, you know, and that's what I like. I like doing different things and, and learning different things. It's uh, as you know, Ben, you know, when you get out of law school, you don't really know how to practice law. You just, right. know, you just have the tools to get ready to start, to start learning. I mean, the mm-hmm. learning law starts after you finish law school and pass that bar exam, because it's a daily, daily learning experience because uh, no lawyer is ever going to know everything. I mean, it's impossible, especially in today's mm-hmm. uh, world where it's getting more and more specialized. I mean, the days of going to the the old country lawyer who can do everything for you, no matter what, uh, that those days are quickly coming to an end because mm-hmm. uh, there's just too much to keep up with. I mean, yep. you can't you can't keep up with with all the different areas of the law, workers comp, products liability. I mean, unless you do that all the time, I mean, you you can't keep up with the changing dynamics in those areas. So I agree 100 percent. And, you know, I I had law school classmates that went out and started their own practice right away. And I was like, there is no way I would do that. Even today, I would not want to be a solo practitioner because, like I said, it's just too much to keep up with. And I like the idea of being able to bounce things off of colleagues or if you don't do it in your office, you have another colleague at another office who handles personal injury or workers comp or something and you refer things out because like you said the client's expectation is you know what you're doing and you're going to get it right because we have to get an a on our work we can't get c's and d's and f's and it's like if you don't there's a word called malpractice that we want to avoid if, oh yeah as much as possible so um well you know you talked about uh all that's going on at marshall county's county attorney office uh, what are some of the exciting issues you're working on at the moment? Well, locally here in the county, we've got a project going on with our uh, industrial park, and that is uh, toward the south end of the county. Um, I'm going to guess it was probably 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an opportunity to buy some land, and uh, that that land is starting to be developed now. We've got one business already that's um, probably going to be moving into their facility toward the end of April, uh, United Systems. And we've got lots out there for, I don't know how many more lots we've got to offer out there, but probably six or seven at least, I would say. Mm-hmm. That's an exciting opportunity to get some more jobs in here. Mm-hmm. Is that is something where, so that you said the county bought the property, so the county installed the, the water lines, the sewer lines and all that stuff there. And so I guess if someone buys a lot, they just construct their building and tie into that. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a county city um, joint operation with with the city of Benton. The city mm-hmm. of Benton has actually annexed that property, so it's okay. utilities going out there. Um, but the county does own uh, those lots, and so it's been a it's been a joint effort between the city of, of Benton and Marshall County to try to get that rolling. Um, some of the other new things we've got going on: um, uh, brand new nine one one center going in. Um, we've had we had a building that burned. A few years ago, and so uh, there was a need for a uh, kind of a multi-purpose facility. So we've got that new 911 center going in, and it's it's not just a dispatch center; it's kind of a emergency command center. So it's being built to um, accommodate different situations. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're hoping that it would uh, maybe be even be attractive for 
outside jurisdictions to come in and, and tap into our 911 center and and use our dispatch center to to also dispatch their emergency response units. So that's another thing we got going on. And then just trying to navigate uh, COVID. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a daily changing issue, it seems. And we just have to, uh, you know, last year, March of 2020, everything just kind of came to a grinding halt mm-hmm. and taking it day by day since. Yeah. And, you know, um, for those who don't know about Marshall County, um, I mean, Marshall County has a lot to offer people as far as jobs, uh, you know, a really good school system, public school system, whereas in Florida, you know, a lot of times people have to send their kids to private school and it's $20,000 a year. And, um, but with all the, the Calvert City plants that are going on and then you, uh, the county's trying to attract businesses and I know you have grants or, you know, all that stuff. There's a lot of legal issues in Marshall County. Oh, yeah. Um, as you know, we, we've got in the Calvert City area right up there by the, by the lake, we've got no less than eight to ten, I would say, uh, pretty big plants. Uh, Westlake, Arkema, to name a couple. And then uh, we've got the new new place going in at Southwest. Our, our school system, I think, is second to none. Mm-hmm. And, and it's because we've got a we've got a really strong tax base. I mean, mm-hmm. the most part, Marshall County is, I think, a little bit, bit more affluent than some of the surrounding counties. We've just got a lot more job opportunities to offer people and when you've got that tax base, then you can you can have nice nice schools, nice facilities, and nice roads. Our, our county road department, I, I would put them up against any road department in the country. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. the best roads in anywhere that you would see, especially for a county road. I live on a county road, and I'm so glad I live on a county road as opposed to a state road because the county roads get taken care of. And yeah. you live on a state road around here, and a big snow comes it might get, they might get to it. They might not, you know, because they just got so much to cover. Uh, but our County road department is on top of things. So yeah. I really enjoy living here and working here. Well, one thing too, about Marshall County, um, the, the banks here, are, I mean, they look like mansions. The churches here look like mansions. I mean, the, the, the construction, it's like they put the money into it and that's what the, the residents of Marshall County expect. Oh yeah. So, well, that's great. And uh, and one thing about being county attorney too, no billable hours. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. In, you got work to do. You do it, you go home, head yeah. to the gym. Yeah, exactly. And and that's, you know, that's there's there's pros and cons to that too, I guess, because if you get a gigantic project to work on, whether you spend uh, 15 minutes on it or two weeks on it, you're going to get paid the same. Yeah. It all balances out because at the same time, I don't have to worry about sitting here keeping track of hours either. So, oh, I, believe me, if that's you're a in private practice, that's a, that's a big part of it because you've yes, got to your hours. You've got to you've got to bill those hours. You got to worry about okay, who's paid and who's not. So that's yep. a that's a big load off of me uh, for that too. But yeah, I I'll I'll take this any day of the week over having to count hours. Absolutely. So um, what's your favorite part of being a lawyer and what are some of your best lawyer stories? I know you mentioned a few earlier, but uh, there's always a lot of action going on in your neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, I, of all the stuff that we do, I, I enjoy the, I enjoy going to the, the prosecutor role probably the best. Uh, if I had to pick a second favorite aspect of the job, it would probably be uh, working with county government. Now, county government is, you've got 
you've got politicians involved there at the local and state level that you're always dealing with. So mm-hmm. there can always be some headaches there, but that's, I mean, that's to be expected with any, any job in the legal field. You just have to navigate, the, navigate those issues and, and play the game, uh, which I've learned to do, I think fairly well over the years and try to try to find common ground between different folks with different opinions as far as the local government goes. But I really enjoy the criminal aspect of it because uh, everything is each day, each day is a new day. And I was, I was reading over your questions yesterday and I was trying to think of some good, good, funny stories. And there's probably a lot more if I had some time to sit and think about it, but I've got, I've got at least two I can go over here with you. And probably this is probably my favorite story of all time. So I'm in trial and this is a, we've got a defendant charged with violation of a domestic violence order. So mm-hmm. for people who may not know what that is, uh, this, the, the lady had gone to court and got a protection order against her husband uh, because of some domestic violence before, uh, between them. Mm-hmm. So judge enters the order and it's a, it's a strict no contact or communication order between them and to stay, I, I think it was at least 2,500 feet away or something, something of that nature. It may not have been mm-hmm. much, but let's just, let's just say 2,500 feet away. Mm-hmm. So the, the order's in place and he's charged with violating it. And he, he had come to her work place here in Marshall County and that's how he got in trouble. And so the police respond and he's just, uh, he's just adamant that he did not violate the order. I, I don't know to this day, I don't know why he thought he was innocent, but you know, he wanted to roll the dice with the jury. So it's his right. You know, I can't make anybody plead guilty. So we end up in trial and it's a pretty strong case. I mean, I've, I've got him because, uh, you know, I've got the, uh, the victim there testifying that, yeah, he pulled up in the parking lot. He was there. I've got the uh, officer who corroborated everything who arrived on scene, saw him there and actually took the measurements just to be sure, you know, yes, he was within, a restricted zone of where she was and he knew that she worked there. And so it was, it was a pretty, pretty strong case against him. Um, and so um, we get to the closing argument phase of the trial. And at this point, I know I've got him um, because he didn't really have any defense. So I'm up in front of the jury and, and making my argument and just try to set the physical stage here for you. I, when I when I'm when we make our closing arguments in Marsh County, we're facing a jury who is seated to on one side of the courtroom. So mm-hmm. behind me is my desk where the victim was sitting. So, but I can't see her. And then behind me on the other side is the judge, and I can't see him. Mm-hmm. And further behind me, almost directly behind me, is the defendant. So the only thing I can see when I'm giving my closing argument is the jury. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the victim is behind me to my left a little bit while I'm giving my closing argument. And I didn't have any idea what she was doing during my closing argument, but she had her hand up on one side of her face so that the jury could not see her hand, but the defendant could, okay? So the jury, jury couldn't see it either, but the judge and the defendant could. And the whole time I was giving my closing argument, she was flipping off the defendant. And... <laughs> And I had, I had no idea what was going on. So um, the, I finished my closing argument and she has spent the whole time flipping off the defendant. Uh, the judge releases the jury go, to go back and deliberate. And as soon as they get in the deliberation room, the judge just comes down her on her like nobody's business, uh, finds her in contempt of court, finds her uh, $250 
Mm-hmm. And so um, I had, is this kind of blindsided me? So she gets up, goes and pays it immediately mm-hmm. and comes back and sits down beside me before the jury had come back with their verdict. And she mm-hmm. said, I'm not going to quote exactly what she said because it was a bad word, but she said that was the best $250 I've ever spent. Wow. <laughs> the jury comes back, finds him guilty, gives him 15 days in jail. And so I, on, on one case, the victim got held in contempt of court for flipping off the defendant, got fined $250, and the defendant uh, went to jail for 15 days for violating the domestic violence order. So it's like reality TV there. Never come up with anything better than that. Um, but that's that's one good story. Um, another one that is just, it's still hard for me to believe. This has actually happened twice, uh, both female defendants. So, um, and I, I'm up in circuit court dealing with some child support cases uh, when the uh, Commonwealth attorney is doing their felonies. So this was actually in felony court. It was not one of my cases, but I was just there observing. So uh, waiting for some of my cases to be called. So in circuit court, every every circuit court, we have anywhere between half a dozen to a dozen defendants who are on for review. And they know that they're going to get ordered to take a drug screen that day. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they come to court knowing that they are going to have to provide a, a urine sample. And so uh, two times, it's, it's, it's still almost hard to believe, but two times ladies have brought in urine from somebody else. Okay. Oh so they go to the bathroom. They know they're dirty. So they have got urine from somebody else to try to beat the system. Okay. Mm. Both times these ladies got caught in the bathroom with the observer. Um, mm. so anyway, they come back into court and they've been caught with, with fake, with somebody else's urine. But what is, what here's the, here's the sad and funny part about this is that both times we went ahead and tested their urine and the urine that was in the bottle that they brought in or whatever device they used to bring it in. Mm-hmm. And in, in both of these instances, their urine, their own personal urine, was not as dirty as the fake urine or the other urine that they brought in in the, in the device. Gosh. In other words, they would have been better off using their own urine because in both instances, all mm-hmm. they had in their urine was marijuana Whereas in the urine they had borrowed from somebody else, it, it was dirty for meth. So the, the urine that they brought in from somebody else was dirtier than their own urine. Yeah. It's, you just can't make, make up stories like that. It's just, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. And let me ask you this, um, you know, going off, off script here, but, um, you know, you talk about the drug issue and stuff like that. Uh, one battle we've been facing in uh, Florida is legalization of marijuana. And um, what it is, the scenario with that and just drug the drug situation overall in Kentucky, because I've heard for years that meth is really bad and that uh, with legalization of marijuana, you know, people say they're using it for medicine, but people are concerned about uh, more car wrecks and things. Um, have you guys been having to do that analysis? Well, let's kind of, I guess we can kind of break that down into two different, two different issues there. Uh, first, uh, the marijuana issue, you know, it's, it's funny how things have changed. When I first started practicing, you know, marijuana was was something that was taken pretty seriously around mm-hmm. around the Jackson Purchase area, Western Kentucky. Yeah. And not heard of on a first offense possession of marijuana that somebody would do some some jail for that. You know, mm-hmm. up, up to a week in jail. And that was common not only in Marshall County but around uh, the surrounding counties as well. It was something that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the I think the community would would have supported that at the time. You know, everybody looked at marijuana as 
you know, that's kind of a big deal. Um, but, you know, fast forward 18 years later, yeah, it's, it's not something that everybody condones the use of, but at the same time, you know, everybody, I think, I think a lot of people have the kind of the mindset that, well, yeah, it's, it's illegal, but why are we, why are we, I mean, it's not something that we want to put somebody in jail for and cost the taxpayers money. Mm. And uh, that, that came home to me a couple of years ago when we, we actually tried a first, the ever, the first ever possession of marijuana case I ever tried. And this, this fellow was dead to rights guilty, but he just was refusing to, to plead to anything. And I'd offered him just a fine. I said, just pay your fine and be done. He said, no, I'm on a jury trial. Like, All right, whatever. And so we tried it and I told the jury, I said, you know, this is the first time I've ever tried a participant in a marijuana case. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit up, sit up here and ask you to do anything. I just want you to tell me as six people in the community, what you think the punishment should be for simple possession of marijuana. And they came back with a $250 fine. So how much did you offer the guy for the fine? I believe it was 300. 300. Oh, okay. So, so he beat my offer by 50 bucks. Yeah. You probably use that to buy more marijuana. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the marijuana issue, it, before I die, I think it'll be legal in Kentucky. It, it, uh, there was a bill that was, uh, presented this year that would have decriminalized it, but it never really made it to a vote. Uh, you know, Illinois got it legal now. That there's probably 13 or 14 other states that have it legal for s- small recreational use. I think it'll eventually be that way here in Kentucky. And to be quite honest with you, if you really look at it from a law enforcement pr- perspective, I've, I've asked s- several police officers, who would you rather deal with, somebody that's smoking marijuana or somebody who's drunk? Every single one of them are going to say, I would much rather deal with somebody who's under the influence of marijuana than somebody who's drunk because yeah. there's, there's just a different, total different mindset on the effects of alcohol versus the effects of marijuana. So I think it's coming. It's just mm-hmm. inevitable. And, you know, I tend to agree with, with that jury. You know, we live in a day and time where our jails are full of people who are in there for, for drug offenses. And if, if all it is is quote unquote marijuana, I don't think we ought to be putting people in jail for that. Uh, it's just, it's just too much of a burden on the, on the taxpayer to mm. have those folks in jail and our jails who are just jam packed. We just don't have the room to put people in jail for marijuana. Yeah. Uh, now switching gears over to the meth issue. Um, it, it's still a very, very big issue, meth and uh, prescription pill problems oh, are yeah. our biggest issues here in Marshall County and probably Kentucky generally. Um, and again, t- kind of show you how things have changed. When I first came here and started prosecuting, our big thing going on was manufacturing. You know, we would have every couple of weeks, there would be a meth lab that would be busted. Yeah. The legislature has, has made so many changes in that area where it's, it's basically really, really difficult to manufacture methamphetamine the old-fashioned way back mm-hmm. the way it used to be in the early 2000s because uh, you can't get the ingredients as easily. And people are just watching out, you know, merchants who sell some of these ingredients are watching out and they're, and they're notifying law enforcement. Hey, this, this fellow came in and is very suspicious. And I, I think he's buying this uh, for drug production. And so it's really, really, we, I, I haven't seen a manufacturing methamphetamine case come through in probably five or six years. It's oh, wow. Yeah. But, you know, there's still a demand for it. So there's, where does your, where does your supply come from? And unfortunately it comes from Mexico. And that, that crystal meth from Mexico is in, in many ways uh, worse 
than the old-fashioned, you know, outdoor meth lab that was manufactured locally because it's a lot more powerful and you don't know what is in it. I mean, you have no idea what they have put in the crystal meth uh, coming from Mexico. And uh, that and their prescription pill problem is, without a doubt, our two biggest problems because you can go to a circuit court case or circuit court rule day and it's just one drug case after another. It's just yeah. it's a lot of it's the same people. And it's depressing. I mean, I, I when I go to speak to some civic groups around here, I, I tell them, I was like, when the, when the courts open back up again, you ought to make a time to come and watch um, circuit court criminal day. I mean, you would be shocked at some of the things that you see, how many people are just sick with, with drug addiction. And it's, it's depressing. It is, it is really depressing. And um, I, my, my, I've been preaching more money for drug court for the, for, for years and years and years. We have a drug court here and um, it's limited because of, of resources. Mm-hmm. We only graduate anywhere between six and a dozen people every two years. So, uh, but drug court is so successful. I mean, you, you just do not see people um, it, it's, uh, come back to the system after they've graduated drug court, extremely low recidivism rate. So if, yeah. if people through drug court, it's, we have a graduation ceremony for them. The community comes out and I love it because I can look at those people crossing those stage and getting those certificates. And I can say, there is a very, very good chance that they are going to be working productive members of society and that we won't have to deal with them in the, in the criminal justice system anymore. And I just really, really wish we could spend more money on drug court programs as opposed to incarceration. Yeah. Well, and you know, like you said, if someone's sitting in jail for drug possession, they're not getting any treatment, I'm guessing. Um, and so the problem continues and then they get out. And when you're an addict, you're, your thing is I've got to get more drugs. I got to go back to it. And if you don't address the addiction problem, you're not addressing the problem. Yeah. And and here's the thing too, you know, it, let's say, and I can't even imagine the scenario where it would happen, but what if we, what if we tried a simple possession of methamphetamine case in front of a jury, you know, it's a three year maximum sentence. And I just, I cannot see 12 people in Marshall County, saying that that person ought to spend three years in prison for possession of methamphetamine. You know, I can, I, what I would envision happening is when they go back and deliberate, they're going to come back with a question, a written question within 15 minutes and say, how can we get this person help? That's just the, that's just the mindset of everyone. I think, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and as far as prosecutors and the judges are, you know, we don't want to see people in jail for simple drug use. I mean, I don't think anybody does. We want to see them get help. But the, the problem with pills and meth is that, that dr- those drugs are just so addictive and they have such a hold on people that um, going to jail is no longer um, something that they fear. You know, yeah. the, the addiction is that strong. You know, wow. it, they, would, they, they take the chance on using drugs, uh, even knowing that it could put them in jail because that's just, you know, it's just not something that they consider a deterrent anymore. Yeah, I guess their main thing is they need to get their high and they'll do whatever it takes to get it. Yeah. So, well, uh, hopefully that drug court will get more support and, uh, you know, help more people out and get their lives back on track. Yeah. So uh, one of the things uh, that's very important as a lawyer is to have a good mentor. And it can be a mentor who's a lawyer or a non-lawyer. So who have been some of your biggest mentors in your career? 
Well, we'll start with the legal field first. Uh, what the, the name I mentioned, we talked about a little bit before, Rick Johnson passed away a couple of years ago. He was a court of appeals judge for 15, 16 years, um, private practice uh, for 12 years before that. Uh, and, and one of the things I'll never forget from uh, Judge Johnson is that at the court of appeals, you know, that it's, you get an, you get a, an appeal of, of right as a matter of right from circuit court. You know, everybody gets a chance to appeal. And so a lot of times, and the court of appeals can't not hear those cases. We have to hear those cases at a, as a court of appeals. So in a lot of those cases, let's just be honest, they're garbage. I mean, it, you, they're, the people have absolutely no grounds to appeal it. A lot of them are, are pro se. In other words, they're not represented by an attorney. And some of them are inmates who have nothing better on nothing better to do than to file frivolous appeals. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I got this uh, one. We got this one appeal in, and it was handwritten by an inmate, almost totally illegible. It was very hard to read. And um, I went to Judge Johnson and I said. You know what? What do you want me to do with this? Because it, you couldn't even really comprehend what his argument was. And you know, we could have we could have easily just said, "It's you can't read it," uh, affirmed, and stamped it. I mean, that that could have been the end of it. We could have d- taken care of that case within five minutes. Mm-hmm. He said, "He said, Jason, you know, everybody needs to feel like that they have had their voices heard." So. Mm-hmm do the best you can to figure out what he's arguing and tell him why he's wrong, because that's, that's our court system. You know, everybody deserves to have their voices heard. And I'll never forget that, you know, as frivolous as it may be, you know, if you sit there and listen to people and if you um, try to explain to them why they're wrong, then you have at least given them a chance as opposed to just saying, Oh, this is, you know, I've got better things to do and better cases to work on, more important cases to work on. Uh, so that's that's one lesson that I, that I've learned from him that I'll I'll never forget, um, among many from from Rick Johnson. And I miss him. He's a, he was a great friend, and I was really sorry sorry that he passed so young. Um, of course, Jeff Edwards. He he gave me this opportunity here at the county attorney's office. Um, worked with George Long a lot a lot over my career too. Uh, George was just so meticulous, so uh, detail oriented, and uh, George is a man after my own heart because he told me uh, when I first got to the office there, he said, "Jason, welcome to the office. I want to I want you to go out and buy you a chair, and I'll reimburse you for it because every lawyer needs a good chair." And I was mm-hmm. like, "All right, George, you know I, I appreciate that." So I went out and got a two hundred dollar chair. I remember exactly how much it cost. You know, not anything exorbitant. And so two years later, George and I, or Jeff and I decided to move uh, over to Tom Blankenship because George's mm-hmm. son was coming in, Eric. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't enough room for four lawyers in that office. So no hard feelings or anything. We just needed to, we needed to move to make room for Eric. Mm-hmm. And George said, uh, I'm going to uh, depreciate the cost of that chair and let you buy it back from me if you're going to take it with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, George, you know, and the, over the, t- over the course of two years, uh, according to George, the value of the chair had only depreciated $10. So I had, to, I had to write him a $190 check for my $200 chair. So, uh, but George is so meticulous and so detail oriented and he, he was, he's such a good lawyer. Uh, and I, I still take a lot of those lessons from him. And, and Jeff, obviously, we had a lot of good times together, learned a lot from him because 
he had, he had come into the county attorney's office with a lot of uh, criminal defense uh, work behind him too. He was a public defender for a while. So mm. he had lots of experience on both sides before he got to be county attorney. So learned a lot of lessons from him. As far as non-lawyers go, you know, my parents and grandparents, just hard work, you know, mm-hmm. that, yep. um, my, my grandparents on my mom's side never went past the eighth grade, uh, but granddad was a World War II veteran, came home and got a good job at working at the plants in Calvert mm-hmm. for his family. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side were never went to uh, uh, past high school, but they were farmers and carpenters their whole life. So mm-hmm. uh, just hard work. You know, you, if you want something, you got to work for it. So that's the lessons I learned from my parents who were both retired school teachers and they provided for me and, um, I just, I've just lived a very good, good life. The Lord has been good to me. So, yep. but those are some good stories there and good values too, which leads me into my next question. Um, in your mind, what makes a person a great lawyer? Uh, well, the, the, the way that you are a, a, a great lawyer, I think is a lot of times what makes you a great judge and that uh, mm-hmm. a great judge has to be able to listen, understand both sides of the argument um, and then find the right answer. And sometimes the right answer isn't always easy. Um, and sometimes there are close calls, you know, that, uh, and judges, judges do have a tough job. You know, they have to try to balance and try to come up with, with solutions for, for issues. And that's, that's a lot of, a lot of the same for what makes a lawyer uh, good or bad. And if, if you can't, cause, uh, uh, being a lawyer, not only is understanding your facts, the law that's favorable to you, but it's also understanding, okay, what is against me? What, what is the other side going to argue a counter to what I'm going to argue? Mm. I go in knowing full well what your strengths are. And you've got to, in some ways, it's more important to know what your weaknesses are more than it is to know what your strengths are. Right. Because you have to be able to understand the facts and the law to be able to advise your client here's what you're going into and here's what you're up against. And one of the tough things about uh, that situation is sometimes you, you get facts dealt to you over issues that you may not have any idea really what's going on. Mm-hmm. For example, construction cases, you're dealing with, with high level engineering and architecture uh, problems sometimes. And when you start getting into, um, let's say the, a construction project gone bad, who, who is to blame? Okay. Was it the contractor who didn't follow the plans? Uh, was it the architect who didn't do their plans correctly? Was it the engineer who didn't do the, the math correctly on some of these engineering? And as a lawyer, you have to kind of learn a little bit about architecture and engineering. And that's tough yep. Yep. because especially for me, cause I'm dumb as a rock when it comes to math. And so I've, and it's, and whether it's a med mal, you know, medical malpractice, if you're a med malpractice, what, regardless of which side of the, aisle you're on, whether you're a plaintiff or the defense counsel, you have to learn a little bit about medicine and, and medical procedures. So, and so it, some, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And you have to, I think the main thing is, is you have to be willing to keep learning Yeah, because you can't just know the law. You have to know uh, the facts surrounding it. So. Yeah, well, that, that's true. And, um, Kind of goes into my next question. How has the legal practice changed since you started practicing in 2003? Because when that, uh, that's when I started, both for the good and the bad, because 
my gosh, things are a lot more complicated now than they were in 2003. And let alone when some of our colleagues started practicing maybe in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And we, we touched a little bit about this earlier, but it's, it's a case where, you know, flashback 40, 50 years ago, you could go see a lawyer. You could just pick a lawyer, go to, go to any lawyer with virtually any problem. And chances are he or she could probably help you with it. But the law has gotten so complex and so specialized that that's just not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like my friend, Eric Long, who moved in with his dad, George. I mean, he has a very, very unique practice. He does real estate and probate and some commercial transactions, but that's pretty much it. And he makes a, he makes a very good living just doing that. Tom Mm -hmm. Chip is the same way he does. He's our master commissioner, does a lot of uh, judicial sales, real Mm -hmm. estate, and not much else. And yeah. they they do such a they do a great job at that. Uh, Bob Prince, another local lawyer, he does a mostly uh, family work, uh, a little bit of criminal here and there. I'll see him in criminal court every now and then, but mostly family and bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, was my former boss and mentor. Uh, he doesn't work here anymore, but he has a, a thriving bankruptcy practice, and he's oh, wow. he's one of the only people around here that does uh, debtor bankruptcy. And mm-hmm. so. Um, that's that that's that's what it's going to be going forward. It's going to be a specialized area, and Kentucky doesn't have quote unquote experts. But you know, you you start visiting lawyer pages, and every every lawyer's website has okay. Here's what we do, and mm-hmm. it's be limited. You know, it's going to be criminal defense, it's going to be plaintiff's work, or it's going to be uh, med mal or products liability, bankruptcy. But it's not going to be everything. Mm-hmm. You can't keep track of everything. Yeah. You know, if somebody, if let's say that I was in private practice tomorrow and somebody came in to me with a worker's comp issue, I wouldn't have a clue how to start working on a worker's comp case. I'd say, well, let me get out the, let me look on the internet and try to find you somebody because I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a products liability case, you know, I know a little bit about products liability, but not enough, certainly not enough to handle the case on my own. I'd have to come out with, I'd have to get some help on it. Or a bankruptcy. I know enough about bankruptcy to be dangerous. You know, yeah. there's no way that I could single-handedly handle a bankruptcy case. And that's mm-hmm. the way it's going to be because those areas are just getting so so more more and more complex that you have to pick out what you want to do and, and keep up with it. Well, I think another thing too, um, the laws change where clients expect things to be done right away, especially with email. I mean, I, mean, I get so many emails; it's ridiculous. But uh, you have to respond right away. And I think, too, if it's a fast moving deal, like let's say you've got a real estate deal, you're working on the real estate side. But if you've got a tax issue, you're bringing in like tax counsel or an accountant or somebody to address that because you've got to keep the deal moving forward the entire time. Or like a med malpractice case, if you're doing the personal injury stuff, you kind of know that. But you have your experts who are probably not even lawyers being your uh, your medical consultants and evaluating the claim. And, and is it like, is this a legit claim or is it worth uh, me just referring out or telling, Hey, you know, you really don't have a claim. Let's just uh, move on. So yeah, that is a gotta, big change. Yeah. You got to be willing to collaborate too. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be able to know, Hey, this is, this is something I need help on. So, yeah. Well, and I think another thing is, I mean, the effects of COVID, I mean, like we're doing this interview through zoom which normally I, before that I was doing my interviews in person, which I always liked, but you know, a lot of lawyers are working from home and they're doing uh, court hearings through zoom and stuff like that. And I think that's probably going to continue a lot. 
Yeah, uh, even even when the Supreme Court opens things back up, we're still going to be doing a lot of a lot of Zoom court, which you know we've kind of gotten used to it. Uh, yeah, well, it's more efficient. You save time on uh, not having to drive. And yeah, this and that, and prisoner transport on criminals. You know, back before before Zoom, if we had a, a criminal uh, in Pike County that needed had needed to have a court appearance here, we'd have to go to Pike County. That's that's six hours one way. Yeah. And so just think of the, the fuel costs that's saved by doing Zoom appearances. So Plus the damage to your lower back sitting in the car that long. Exactly, exactly. So um, well, one thing that lawyers often struggle with is work-life balance because we have very demanding careers, uh, a lot, lot on our plate, a lot of stress. Um, and some lawyers are perfectionists, which they can, I will commend you. The, the Kentucky CLE had a presentation on work-life balance. And I, I watched that and I thought it was fantastic. And actually, she's going to be on my show uh, next month. But, um, you know, lawyers were perfectionists. And it's like, you got to get an A or at the big firm, I've got to bill more hours than my colleague or this or that. And um, they, they, they don't separate the office from the personal life. And it can be a problem. Uh, you do a pretty good job of that, though. So how do you manage your work-life balance? Well, to me... Um... And this is just this is just me, but you, I think you have to be able to to shut things off to a certain degree when you walk out the walk out the door, and that's mm-hmm. always possible. I mean, I I I'm I worry about things and I think about things late at night when I'm trying to go to sleep and first thing when I get up in the morning, and, you know, think about issues. Okay, what am I going to do? I, I'm I'm probably one of the world's world's worst warriors and and thinkers when it comes to not being able to shut things off. But but I I, I can do it, and to me it's it's running. And uh, I, I started running uh, seriously probably about 13, 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something that I discovered later in life because when I was a kid, I had asthma pretty bad. And so if I always tell a story, if you had walked into my kindergarten class and said, picked out one kid who was going to run a marathon on all seven continents, I would have been the last one that you would have picked out because I was probably wheezing and probably sniffing and sneezing and couldn't catch my breath. Um, but uh, thankfully, the, with medicine and just kind of growing out of it, I, w- I figured out later on in life, hey, I can I can run for long distances and do pretty good at it. So that's become a total obsession with me. I'm, I, I admit that I'm a full-blown running addict, and that's that's my release because when I'm out, when I'm out running before work or on the weekends, I tend not to think about anything else except for just enjoying what's around me. And so that, that helps me um, tremendously. It's a big stress reliever. And plus it makes, it just makes me feel good. I mean, it's mm-hmm. my health, it gets my blood flowing and it's, it's just good physical exercise. And that's, that's, I think that's important um, for anybody to find something to do along those lines. Well, I tell you what, because I mean, every time I'm in Kentucky, I always run into you up at the, the mega gym. And, you know, Marshall County's um, really into fitness. I mean, my gosh, I feel like I need to work out before I walk into the mega gym as big as some of those guys are there. But, you know, there are a lot of women that are really into the, the fitness too. Yeah, we've got um, two really nice facilities here in Marshall County. Um, the mega gym there in Draftonville and then Snap Fitness. Actually, two Snap Fitnesses. There's one in Calvert and there's one in So. Yeah. Lots and all three of those are real, just top-notch facilities. And I've been to some towns looking for a place to go work out where the facilities were just not 
not up to snuff. Yeah. So I, I feel really fortunate to be in a place where I can go to mega gym and it's a top notch facility and be able to work out. Uh, but yeah, I'm, that's, that's how I balance it. Uh, and running, running has been so good to me. It's opened so many doors. I've met so many people, uh, traveled all over the world. And if I can brag for just a second, mm, sure. Um, I was able to do three Boston marathons. Um, mm. and I'm the first person from Kentucky to do all six world marathon majors, which is uh, Boston, New York, Chicago, Tokyo, London, and Berlin, and all seven continents. So, uh, I don't know if anybody else has done that from Kentucky after me, but I'm I'm 99% sure that I'm the first person from Kentucky to do that. So there's not not many people in the world in that club. So that kind of makes makes me feel good. Well, when um, things get back to normal, you'll have to do the Miami Marathon. The marathons yeah. down there are pretty big. Yeah. When when is that? When does that take place? You know, I think it's like around April or something. They go like from downtown Miami, even through Miami Beach. I think it's like April. It's it's definitely not in the summer months. It's they try to do it cooler. So yeah. Maybe it's April or November. I can't remember. They have to just Google it. But that that's always a big marathon because you get a lot of running's big there, and of course you got people coming from all over the world and uh, to Miami for that race. And um, we had a thing that was kind of cool. It was called the corporate run, and they would always do a downtown walk or run in Miami and they do it in Fort Lauderdale and West Palm beach. And you'd have thousands of people there, but then the businesses would come and support and, you know, it's kind of a party as well. But uh, yeah. they, they can start one in Marshall County right there on the court square. Yeah. I tell you the, the running community is, I mean, it, I love, I love being a part of it. It's, it's, it's unique. Everybody's real supportive. And uh, of course it's, it's good for you. I mean, it's good for yeah. exercise. So, so what is the best running shoe? Well, I can only speak for me. Uh, yes. And I have a pretty unique need, I guess you could say, is that mm-hmm. I have to have a wide toe box. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, the normal brands like Asics, Brooks, Nike, uh, I'm not speaking badly against those, but those just don't work for me because mm-hmm. uh, they're too narrow. Uh, I need a wide toe box so that when I land, that my toes can spread out. And it, it's because of a uh, arthritis that I have in my, in my feet. That's, that's not oh. needed. So it, um, ultra is the brand that I, that I run. Ultra. A L T R A. And they have a wide toe box. They're known for uh, the zero drop is what they call it. And there's, there's no drop from the heel to the toe on the shoe, as opposed to like on a, like on a Brooks or an Asics, your, your heel is a little bit higher than the, the front part of the shoe. Mm-hmm. And so the, the theory behind the ultra is it, it mimics barefoot running. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get the benefit, the benefit of barefoot running with cushion. So I guess is, is the, the philosophy behind that. And it's, it's a wide toe box. Mm-hmm. And so that works for me. I've, I've run exclusively in ultras for about eight years now. And, um, I can't say any, anything bad about them. They're really they're and they're actually a little bit cheaper than a lot of the other high end oh, uh, running shoes. So uh, they're, they're a great company. They stand by their product. If you get one and it doesn't work out, they'll exchange it. No questions asked. We'll give you your money back, whatever, whatever you ask for. So I, I speak highly of ultra. So one thing I wanted to ask about with these running the marathons and stuff, um, do you have to get sponsorships or endorsements for that? Cause uh, I guess they have an entry fee. Um, and I've seen runners that had endorsement deals. 
I, some of them do. Uh, uh-huh. I, I guess I'm just not, not good enough that anybody's ever taken notice and said, hey, I'd like to sponsor you in this race. Uh, except, except for one, one race, uh, our, our, our mutual friend and, and Cole Marshall County graduate, Eric Howard, uh, uh-huh. who, who used to own, uh, Kennedy's, uh, or, or manage Kennedy's bookstore. Yeah. Uh, he had a, he had a shop here in Marshall County where he sold a lot of, uh, sports paraphernalia and, and clothing. Uh-huh. And, uh, he, he sponsored me in the New York marathon one year. So, oh, okay. Um, and it, the, the money that he gave me actually went to the charity that I was running for. So I, I didn't yeah. get the money. It went to a uh, team for kids. And that mm. was a, a charity up in New York that uh, helps to provide sports equipment and sporting opportunities for low income kids in New York. Oh, that's good. So that, that money went straight to that charity. I didn't make a dime off of it. So that's, I guess yeah. my one experience of having a sponsor, but um but yeah, I've I've paid my freight to every everywhere I go. So yeah, well, it's a it's a lot of fun. Like you said, with running, it gives you that energy and the 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 high kind of helps clear your mind. I mean, I know I get that when I do it. And you know, as a lawyer, you need that because it's like you get all this stress built up and your your mind's in a fog, and it's like you got to have something to release that. Yeah, and I you know for me the the, the greatest probably the the greatest one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, was the 2014 Boston Marathon uh, mm. for a, a variety of reasons. Number one, it was the first marathon after the bombing. So everybody was really emotional about it. Mm-hmm. Huge turnout of support from, from everyone around that community. And it's a big turnout anyway, but this one right. was multiplied by 10, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. A full day, a picture-perfect running day. Uh, Meb Kafleski won. Uh, the first time that an American man had won the marathon in uh, probably 30 years. So mm-hmm. I was excited about that. They were filming Patriot's Day. So if you if you watch Patriot's Day at the beginning of the movie, I'm in the movie along with about 30,000 other people from the helicopter view. So Oh, the helicopter view. Okay. Yeah. You, you can't pick out Jason Darnold from the helicopter view, but trust me, I'm in there. They, they said, everybody wave at the camera. Uh, Patriots Day, Mark Wahlberg's filming right now. So I am in Patriots Day. You just can't see me. Um, and then uh, let's see. Oh, and I don't know if you heard earlier this week, but Dick Hoyt passed away. Uh, you, you familiar with Dick Hoyt? That name sounds familiar. What What does he do? He was uh, him and his, he had a paraplegic son that he would push in a stroller. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Team yes. Hoyt. Yeah. And so during the 2014 uh, marathon, I actually came upon them and ran with them for, you know, a quarter mile or so. So that was really, really neat. I'll never forget that uh, getting to run with team Hoyt. I mean, you talk about an inspiration. Those guys were just amazing athletes. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. I knew you had been a big runner and that, that fits right in with the living the dream theme of this show. So uh, two more questions before we start talking about the important stuff of Wildcat basketball and Cardinal baseball. Um, you know, we, we probably get a lot of questions from uh, youngsters about what it's like to be a lawyer and uh, what we need to do to be a lawyer. Uh, matter of fact, um, mutual friend Jason Ward, his son, uh, he reached out to me and said his son's considering being a lawyer. And so he was looking forward to this interview. So what is your advice to someone who's considering being a lawyer? Like any, I would say that the, my advice about going into the legal profession would be really about any other profession, I think, is to make sure that that's what you want to do. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you want to be a lawyer for um, quote unquote making good money, or for being able to have power, or for what for those other reasons, you're probably not going to be happy doing it because the money's not always going to be there. Um, we live in a time; it's not as bad now, I don't think. But a few years ago, there was a time when lawyers were getting out of law school and had nowhere to go, mm-hmm. working at uh, you know quote unquote normal jobs. You know, they would apply for to work at Walmart or, you know, to go um, be a cook at some place or another. And I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about those jobs, but obviously you didn't go to law school to go to work at Walmart. And so um, it's not always as glamorous as it seems. And so you've got to make sure that that's what you really want to do because it's, it's a lot of hard work to get there. And these days it's expensive as heck to get there. Yes. Um, I, I, and I'll give you an example. As you as you know, Ben, when we were in law school, I think my one year tuition for both semesters for a year was like seven thousand dollars. Talking over the course of three years, somewhere between twenty one and twenty five thousand dollars is what my tuition uh, cost me uh, to go to law school. Now it's probably four or five times that. Yeah, and. and that was at an in-state state school. You know, yeah. I, I I can't even comprehend what it might be like to go to a place like Yale or Harvard without a scholarship and pay to go to law school. I mean, it, you're coming out of you're coming out of undergrad in law school with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Yeah, you haven't even bought a house or a car yet. So, yeah, it's interesting because um, you know I was deciding where I wanted to go to school and. Um, I interned at the Whitlow firm and there were some lawyers that um, had gone to Vanderbilt, but they'd gone to Vanderbilt like in the late sixties or early eighties and stuff. And it wasn't as expensive there, but it was like, um, they're like, yeah, you know, if you go out of state, let's say the university of Virginia or or Yale or Vanderbilt or something, you come up, well, even where I went to Miami for that one year, when your tuition is that much and you come out of law school at a hundred thousand dollars in debt, it limits really where you can apply for a job. So it would be tough being a hundred thousand dollars in debt coming back to Paducah, which I mean, they can pay pretty good or Marshall County pay pretty good, but your student loan payment is so much that it's like, sometimes you're forced to try to be in New York or Chicago and maybe you don't want to be there. Yeah. So um, I think one thing um, and I ended up going to Louisville, I'm a huge Kentucky fan, but, Kentucky didn't want to offer any scholarships and I had good scores and everything. And I'm like, well, you know, I can still be a Kentucky fan and go to Louisville and take a scholarship because I felt like it allowed me to have more flexibility as far as options. And I know that was um, an issue for a lot of lawyers. You think about not just your law school time, but your career down the road. Yeah. And two, I'd tell anybody who's, who's thinking about doing it is that, um, probably less than less than 10 times in 18 years if I ever had a client walk in and say where did you go to law school yeah they don't they don't care mm. nobody nobody that I talk to on a daily basis cares where I went to law school mm. do I have a license to practice law that's all they care about yeah that's my reputation so you know trying to go to Harvard or Vanderbilt or Princeton or all these other, you know, fancy out-of-state schools. I mean, seriously think about it because there you can get a quality education for a lot less money. And at the end of the day, 
nobody really cares. I mean, nobody really cares where I went to school. So yeah. I think I, I tell people, um, you know, you want to be as well-rounded as you can be. And like I did engineering in undergrad and um, <clears throat> I think you were, you're a business major, right? At UK? Uh, poli sci. Poli sci. Okay. Yeah. Cause I tell people, well, if you're doing political science or that, I like to mix in the idea of a business degree or something in finance or marketing, because now, you know, lawyers are not just practicing law, they're running a business. So you kind of have to understand finance and marketing and all this stuff. So I like to throw that in. And I think if I had to go back and do it again, I would have done the JD slash MBA program because you can do all of that in four years as opposed to doing the law degree in three years and then two years for the MBA. Because there are some people, they may be like, you know what, being a lawyer is not for me, but I enjoy being a business person down the road and the skills that you have as a lawyer, you understand yeah. contracts and stuff. That can be a very valuable asset. But, uh, but the answer that you gave about not doing it for the money is consistent with every lawyer that has been on my show uh, for this segment. And it's not that lawyers, we can make, we can make good money. But it's not like what you would see on L.A. Law or Suits or Boston Legal, where you have some lawyers who make two to three million dollars a year. But you have a lot of lawyers that they'll make hundred thousand dollars a year. Maybe they're making yeah. fifty thousand, depending on where they're living, or four hundred thousand. But it's it's not like they're making LeBron James kind of money. Yeah, generally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you you've got to make sure that this is really what you want to do because. You're, you're investing a, a lot of time and a lot of money getting there. So, yeah. Well, and I think another thing too, going back to the work life balance, I kind of had this epiphany for me a few years ago because I was always, all right, you got to give an A, you, you got to be the best, this and that, very competitive. And it's like, you know what? If I die and someone says, wow, that guy can build 2,200 hours a year, he can draft a great real estate contract. Is that really something you want to be remembered for? Is that really that's something that's that impressive? Or is it like, you know what? I want to be remembered because I did this for uh, this charity or for the dogs, or I was a great husband or uh, uh, an uncle or something like that. And I think people need to think about that, not just in their career as a lawyer, but any profession, because people can get so consumed with their job that they really don't have a life. Yeah, yeah I'm the same way. I mean, if, if you ask me, Okay, describe describe who Jason Darnold is. I'd say, well, I'm a runner. You know, I'm I'm married to a, a pretty lady, Jenny. I'm I'm a huge UK fan. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I love horse racing. I like to travel. And oh yeah, I I, I practice law on the side. You know, that's just that's just not something that I, I don't identify myself. It, it's not tra- wrapped up in my identity. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, well, final question before we start talking basketball and Cardinal baseball here. Why do you love being a lawyer? Well, I think it, I think it, it's kind of goes back to a lot about what we've talked about before is that, uh, especially in my position, when I walk in the office every day, I never know really what I'm going to be faced with. Mm. Uh, uh, there's always something new coming up that we haven't <clears throat> done before. Uh, there's always that new case coming out from the Supreme Court that changes things. Um, you run across so many people. You get to meet a lot of different people. Um, people in the community know you. You may, you may not know them, but they know you. Mm-hmm. So they they feel comfortable coming up to you in Walmart and talking to you, which I enjoy meeting new people and 
having new experiences. And, um, you know, if, if I'm in a hurry at Walmart, it's, it's not always uh, something that I look forward to getting that legal question while I'm trying to check out. But, you know, I, I, I try to make time for everybody. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. that's just part of the part of the part of the part of the work. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, we're here living the dream with my friend Jason Darnell. He's Marshall County County attorney. He's been doing a great job. I know uh, the people in Marshall County are very proud of the job he's doing and thankful he's there. And uh, we've been living the dream, talking about the legal career. But now we're going to start living the dream about two things that are important to both Jason and me, and that's Kentucky Wildcat basketball and St. Louis Cardinal baseball. So let's first start with the Wildcats. <clears throat> now we're going to start on positive things because this year's season stunk. <laughs> It's unacceptable. So um, how did you become a diehard Kentucky Wildcat basketball fan? <laughs> well, for, I, I was born into it. I had no choice. Uh, yeah. My papa, uh, his name was Ernie Darnell, mm-hmm. played basketball at Brewers High School here in Marsh County in the 20s. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for people who don't know much about Marsh County, Brewers was a basketball powerhouse uh, back mm-hmm. in the day. And actually to this day, the 1948 Brewers High School team is the last undefeated state champion in the state of Kentucky. So that's mm-hmm. that we still are very, very proud of, especially those of us in the south part of the county. But he played for Brewers High School. And so uh, Papaw uh, listened to uh, Kentucky basketball before they have a, had a television set. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, you know, kind of came of age as a young adult with those early Adolph Rupp teams. So um, he, I can still remember him talking about watching and listening to uh, the, the, the fabulous five, you know, Ralph Beard, uh, uh, Alex Rosa. Uh, um, um, Frank Ramsey was another one. He wasn't on the fab five, but that's another one of my, one of Papaw's favorite players. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Beard was, I think, if, if Papa, if I could, ask, if Papa was still here and I could ask him, I think he would probably say Ralph Beard was his favorite player. Mm-hmm. And so, um, of course, they listen. We everybody listened to K, uh, K. Wood Ledford. And mm-hmm. my growing up with my Papa, his his favorite player was probably Louis Dampier on the Rupps Runs team of '66. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm the third generation uh, UK fan, and it's just it was in inborn into me. I really don't have a my, some of my first memories that I have as a kid was watching uh, UK, listening to K. Wood Ledford, turning the radio down or turning the sound down on TV, listening to K. Wood Ledford with my parents or with my grandparents. You know, yep. if, if we were over at Papa's house or granddad's house and Kentucky was on, we would uh, watch the UK game. It's just something that we did and something that we all enjoyed doing. And so it was it's just part of me. Yeah, no, that's the same with me. I got into it with my grandparents, and uh, my grandfather played on the, the Pilot Oak teams that um, eventually they won. I guess it was 1952. Howard Crittman was on that team. But those Brewers teams from Marshall County, you're right, they were a powerhouse for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and we'd watch the Kentucky games, but they'd have these bus tours. They would go out of Grays County. And so I'd go with them, and this is like when we had Melvin Turpin and Sam Bowie and Charlie Hurt, and so those were the guys that I grew up with, Kenny Walker. We'd go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Georgia, Alabama, and all, and so, you know, you're just kind of born into it. Um, so, well, let me ask you this. Who are your favorite U.K. players of all time? Well, let's start with the the my number one 
all-time favorite player. I think it's the same one that you have. It's uh, the Monster Mash, Jamal Mashburn. Yep. Um, he was – I was 14 years old when he was recruited to come to Kentucky in 1990, 1990, 1991. And as everybody knows, uh, we were on probation starting in 89, 90, and 91. And the Monster Mash – was the perfect recruit at the perfect time for the perfect coach. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think everything just kind of aligned, the stars aligned when Jamal Mashburn signed with UK. And he came here and he was just a, he was so good. He, I mean, so good. When And you'll never convince me that Calbert Chaney was 1993 player of the year. Jamal Mashburn should have won 1993 player of the year. He was I agree. So, so good. And he he played the game, and he was he was a superstar on a team full of role role players, really, because there really wasn't another star like Mashburn on any of the teams that he played for. But he was a superstar. But he played a team game. He was not one who would hog the ball or demand minutes or demand that he have the 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 ball every possession. He played a he played a team game. Mm-hmm. You know, he he worked in perfectly with players like. Uh, John Pelfrey, uh, Darren Feldhouse, uh, Travis Ford, you know, players that, um, you know, outside of UK fans, a lot of people don't remember. Mm-hmm. But, uh, he, he, he melded into that team and he was just, he was, and a, and a good person too. He was, he was just a perfect recruit. And, you know, the recruits after Jamal Mashburn, they, they could look at Jamal Mashburn and say, Hey, uh, as a high level athlete, as a high level basketball player, it's okay to sign with Kentucky again now. Yeah. They're good. Mm-hmm. And he put Kentucky basketball back on the map in the early 90s, and we've enjoyed – well, except for this year. We've enjoyed a pretty pretty doggone good run of success since then. So Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, when Mashburn came in, I remember this is back in the time when they would go to um, – they'd do like the, the, the early practices, and they went to Paducah Tillman High School. And I just remember sitting there with my grandfather and I saw Mashburn and he's, you know, bit this big guy and had the big flat top back in the day. And he was next to like Darren Fellhouse, who was Darren Fellhouse was a pretty good sized guy, you know, muscled up and pelfer, and he just just overpowered them. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna follow that guy. And I and I I got Mashburn's autograph every year he was there. I got my photo with him, and luckily he's been on the show. But he um he kind of transcended how players were, where he was a big guy who could pass. He could shoot outside. He could run. Uh, you know, back in when he came in, you had Shaq, who Shaq was uh, very one-dimensional in that he was just a big guy, didn't shoot. And uh, Then Chris Weber came in, and he learned to shoot a little bit more. But Mashburn was one of those trend-setting guys where when you got in Walter McCarty, McCarty started to shoot. Antoine Walker started to shoot more. And now it's like a requirement for a big guy to be able to shoot yeah. outside. Yeah, and – uh, Mashburn, you know, he had a lot of injuries in the NBA and he seems like he was always on a bad team. I mean, I, yeah. you know, he got drafted for the Mavericks when they were just awful and played many years there, played on some good Miami heat teams, but he, he, he was on those good Miami heat teams at the same time where Jordan and the bulls were just dominating. So nobody had a chance to ever go, get past the bulls. Um, but and then he was plagued with injuries. But I mean, yeah, he was he he had all the tools. He had yeah. every tool that you could have as a basketball player. Well, I talked to him about his time at Miami because he was on that team with Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning. And Mashburn's big big thing was he was a small forward, but he was big and strong. 
And so I'm like, why didn't they put you on the block more against, because you can back Scotty Pippen down, turn around, do that little uh, over the shoulder jump shot. But the thing is, is Alonzo Mourning has got to get his touches and he's got to be in the paint. And so yeah. they'd want to keep Mashburn outside. I'm like, well, you're not taking advantage of his strength. Yeah, I can shoot the three, but when he can drive and back a guy down, that's his talent. And when he went to Charlotte after the trade, I mean, he was averaging 20, over 20 points a game again, like he was in Dallas before he had that knee injury that ended his career. Yeah. So definitely Mashburn. That's a good answer. Uh, some other guys you want to mention here? Well, my my favorite team of all time, I, I don't think it will ever – be topped uh, was the 96 team that was just, it was the in my opinion it is the most well put together pure basketball killing machine that we've ever seen um i mean that team it went and it, i'll never forget you know we would go on the road that year in the sec and of course that would be the only sellout that the other teams would have would be when kentucky would come to town and those fans would come in there ready to root their team against Kentucky mm-hmm. and at the under under 16 timeout of the first half, we would already be up 20 points. I mean, they just killed everybody in their way. And I've, I've, I've never seen a team like that before. And I haven't seen a team like that since. I mean, they were just so much better than everybody else that year. And I, I'd put them up against any of the national champions that we've seen in our lifetime. I mean, they they were the perfect machine. Uh, Tony Delk, uh, Anthony Epps was the perfect point guard for that team. I loved Anthony Epps. Tony Delk, uh, uh, Walter McCarty, Antoine Mercer or Antoine Walker. Uh, then Ron Mercer had twenty points in the championship game. Uh, Mark Pope there in the center. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Jeff Shepard, one of the one of the greatest players that UK has ever seen, uh, didn't really play many minutes for that team because it was so loaded. Yeah. And uh, of course, Derek Anderson was a starting starting two guard there. So it, it was it was just an unbelievable, talented team. I mean, yeah, that, yeah that's that's my favorite team. Yeah, no, I I would agree. I mean, I, I did a, I guess it was last year. I did a March Madness bracket challenge of the best Kentucky teams, and um, I picked the seven the the ninety six team overall. I, I think they would dominate even those Kentucky teams with Anthony Davis or Carl Anthony Towns. I think they'd wipe the floor with him. Well. I don't know if they'd wipe the floor, but I think they would definitely win. And then that 78 team with Jack Givens, uh, Rick Roby, Mike Phillips, Kyle Macy was a great team. Of course, you and I were one when that team was yeah. around. But uh, And, you know, not having seen some of the great teams like the Fab Five with Alex Groza and Ralph Beard and what Wawa Jones, Kenny Rollins, I think Cliff Barker, Cliff yeah. Berger was on that. Um, so, obviously, that was a great team. And those teams with Frank Ramsey and um, – uh, Cliff Hagen were outstanding. And of course, you know, we didn't get to see Dan Issel play, but boy, I tell you, you talk about a, a great player. I mean, he's going to stay the Kentucky league scorer forever because no one's going to stay long enough to, to put up the points. But that was a guy who was six foot nine to go inside, outside. I mean, big time three point shooter in the, in the NBA. I mean, just a tremendous player. Yeah. So, and, I, th- I think he's one of I think he's he may be one of the most underrated basketball players of all time because if you mm. combine his ABA and NBA stats, I believe he is maybe the seventh or eighth on the all-time scoring list. Mm-hmm. I think it's top ten. Let's, let's it, put it this way: I believe he's it, top ten. 
he's up there because I think his career scoring average is like 25 points a game. So, he was called a horse, and he he delivered. He was great. So, let's talk about some of your favorite moments uh, in U.K. basketball. Where are uh, some of your most memorable moments from U.K. basketball? And it can be both good and bad because I know one bad one that's probably going to be on this list. Okay, so either good or bad, okay? Good or bad. Okay. I got a couple of bad ones on my list, but – Let's get, the, let's get the bad ones out of the way first, okay? So, yeah. obviously, everybody talks about the 92 game, uh, Leitner hitting the last second shot. And, you know, if you're if you're not a diehard UK fan, you might not understand what I'm saying here. But, yeah, yeah, I was I was devastated. I was heartbroken. I was, I was devastated. I cried like a little baby because it was also Kay Wood Ledford's last game when yep. Wood Ledford signed off for the last time. I mean, I probably get emotional just thinking about it now. Um, but that nobody expected that team to even be competitive with Duke. I know. Absolutely. And we can also, as Kentucky fans, look back at that with a lot of pride too, because that was made up of, of kids that, uh, nobody expected anything out of them. Mm -hmm. They around, uh, probation when they could have gone somewhere else. They had Mashburn leading the way as the, as the lone superstar, so to speak. And that game was, in my opinion, the greatest college basketball game that's ever been played because both teams executed down the stretch almost perfectly. I mean, there were there when you talk about the last 10 minutes of, of regulation and then overtime, it seems like they scored – both teams scored every time down. Mm-hmm. And it was just a matter of, okay, whoever had the ball last was going to win that game. That's just the way – that's the kind of game it was. It just happened to be that the uh, Final Four was on the line there and – you know, Leitner had 2.1 seconds to work with, and they they threw the perfect pass, and he hit the shot. He was 10 for 10 from the line, 10 for 10 from the field. He played a perfect game. Yeah. And you just have to tip your hat to Duke for how well they played, and we almost got him. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's one that everybody looks back on, but it's also a, a point of pride for a lot of Kentucky fans too, and it is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the, the most heartbroken moment is 2015. Because that was, yeah. I, I was all in, emo, I was I was fully emotionally invested in going forty and zero, and mm-hmm. I went to a bunch of games that year. I was at the Final Four when we got beat by Wisconsin, and um, I was depressed. I was honestly depressed for probably two or three weeks after that, and I, I remember uh, one Sunday morning, uh, two or three weeks after that game. And I was out running and feeling sorry for myself, you know, thinking about how terrible the world was, why this has happened. And finally, I just had an epiphany, I guess you could say, and say, you know, I'm not going to let the outcome of a college basketball game determine my happiness as a human being. And from that point on, you know, I've kind of lived a different life, so to speak. But, yeah, that that one hurt a whole, whole lot. Um, and 2014 hurt a bunch, too, because I was there. Uh, Jenny was with me, so I was really hoping that we could, uh, as husband and wife, could could witness a, a championship in person. So those are probably my top three most uh, heartbreaking moments. Those those three games. But talking about the good things, a '96, uh, watching it at home with my parents, my first my first UK basketball championship. '98, mm-hmm. I was a student at UK, so we got to go out on uh, Euclid Avenue, the Avenue of Champions, and and take part in the party and uh it was it was amazing you know to to walk outside my apartment 
after the game was over in 98 and just listen to Lexington. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. You could just hear people yelling and screaming everywhere and people were out partying. I mean, high-fiving strangers. Uh, so that was indeed uh, one of the greatest moments. And then uh, 2012 uh, was the first time and only time to this date that I've seen Kentucky win a championship in person. And, mm-hmm. so, and my dad um, drove down to New Orleans, uh, spent the weekend down there together. And so that's, I've got that picture framed on the wall. So seeing, seeing uh, Kentucky win a championship in person with my dad was definitely a great moment. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to the 2015 and 2014 games because let me ask you, you were there. I was watching the game. Carl Anthony Towns was a, a, a beast down low. He was scoring every time. I, I was so mad at John Calipari for we come out and he draws up a play for the Harrison twins. I'm like, why did Carl Anthony Towns not even get a touch there? I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And that's where I, I get so upset with Calipari because I think he gets out coached a lot. Oh yeah, I agree with you totally. I, I, that was that game was that was that game was was coaching malpractice. I mean, <laughs> how many we had what back to back shot clock violations? Down yeah, the- I think so. Yes. I mean that's inexcusable. You've got you've got uh, Tyler Ulis, the Harrison twins, and Devin Booker on your roster. You should never get a shot clock violation. And I think was it Devin Booker that only took three. Three pointers that game only shot three three pointers. It may have been. I, I know. I know Calipari rode the Harrison twins pretty hard. Which at least Aaron Harrison he had hit some big shots for us. I'll give him credit on that. But I was like, Carl Anthony Towns was scoring every time, and he was yep. a lot of times scoring and getting fouled and hitting his foul shot too. Yeah, and it you know I, I'm not blaming the twins because they he Cal's the one who put him in the game. Exactly. I blame Cal for not having Euless playing more minutes because if you, in my opinion, if Euless is running the point uh, for the stretch of that game, we go on to win that game and we, we go on to beat Duke on Monday night. So um, I'm still, it's, it's a heartbreaking game, but at the same time, I'm pretty still, I'm still pretty dang mad. I am too. About that. Well, and then on 2014, that was Julius Randall team where really, I mean, for us to get that far, it was, beyond what I thought we were going to do because we were we were a good team but not great but we couldn't hit any foul shots I couldn't do it yeah. I mean I was like what the heck's going on here yeah the same way in 2011 too I mean just a yeah shooting night and I feel like I feel like we gave UConn two championships yeah well a couple of uh heartbreaking moments for me that weren't on your list growing up 1984, a loss to Georgetown in the Final Four where we had Sam Bowie and Melvin Turpin and Kenny Walker against that Patrick Ewing-Georgetown team. We were up at halftime, and then I think we shot 9% in the three second for half. 30, th- three for 30. Is it, is, I think it was three for 30 in the second half. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know what happened to Melvin in that game, but, I mean, he wasn't even playing a lot, and I, don't, I, I just don't understand it, but that was a huge – disappointment um 86 when that kenny walker team lost to lsu in the elite eight um i mean i love that 86 team kenny walker is one of my favorites but some of my uh, top memorable moments i will never ever forget um the 93 94 team where the thanksgiving classic in maui jeff brasso with a tip in against arizona to win the game I remember that's back in the day where I had the VCR and I taped the game and I took it to the high, Marshall County High School and played it 
in a couple of um, classes. And I mean, so I'm a big Jeff Brasso fan. So that was big. And of course, in 1994, our big comeback from 40 points down against LSU. Yeah. I will never forget. I came home from a tournament and I was watching that game. I was like, man, we are getting just blown out here. And I'm like, I, it was like a car crash. You couldn't turn away. And I'm like, well, all right, we just can't get beat by like 20, 30 points. And we just kept coming back. And then he had McCarty hitting threes and Travis Ford and Brasso, even Chris Harrison off the bench hitting threes. And we came back and won that game. And I was like, oh my gosh, couldn't believe it. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I never turned it off. I stayed up to the end and uh, that, that was a good one. The Mardi Gras miracle. Yeah. And then, um, well, that 98 team, um, I will never forget that game against Duke because first off, I, I despise Duke in every facet of, of the wor- world. But Steve Wojciechowski, their point guard, was one of my least favorite players of all time. And Wayne Turner was just taking it to him in that game. And then Scott Padgett hits that big three at the top of the key, and we win that game. And I, it was just like a sense of relief finally beating Duke. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. So that, that was a big one. And, um, gosh, lot, other than the tubby years after the championship, there wasn't a whole lot of good. I was disappointed when we lost in 2003 with that Marquise Estel Bogans team to Dwayne Wade. They just took it to us. But the last half of the 2000s wasn't that great. But, uh, but with Cal, we have had a lot of good things. Um, not this year, but uh, we'll see what happens next year. Yeah. All right. Next question. Um all right, this is going to be interesting here. If you're building your all-time UK basketball team from the 80s, so you're going to have an 80s team, a 90s team, a 2000s team, and a 2010 team, um, and you can have up to 12 players. You don't have to have 12. You can just go with 10 or 8 or whatever you want to do. But who do you pick? So let's start first with your 80s team. Well, I'll probably my – my memory is not as good as it used to be. So – I may just go with a starting five for right. those decades. So for my eighties, uh, obviously we're going to have Kenny Walker in there. That's a, yep. that's a greater. Yep. Um, let's see shooting guard. Let's, so we've got Kenny Walker at center. We've got shoot. Let's do shooting guard. Now I'm going to put him at, I'm going to put him at the two guard. I don't necessarily like him because of some of the things that he's done recently, but he was a good player. Uh, let's let's put Rex Chapman at the two guard. Uh, you have to put that Rex. Um, my point guard. Let's see here. Um, I loved Roger Harden. I loved Roger Harden. I loved Ed, Ed Davender. Um, of course, you got Dirk Minifield. Um, I'm probably going to go Dirk Minifield, mm-hmm. Roger Harden, and, and Ed Davender. Um, so that's my point guard. Let's see, we need a power forward and a three. Well, you can put Kenny Walker at small forward if you want. Yeah. Let's see. He did play center on the 86 team, but. Okay, that, that, that's a good point. Let's let's do Bowie at center. Mm-hmm. Let's move Kenny Walker to the three. We've got we've got our two guard and our point guard, so we need a four. So let me think. Um, well, you got a big dipper out there. Yeah. I'm probably, I may go Winston Bennett. Well, yeah. Four. See, if I was doing my team, I definitely would have Bowie and Turpin as my center and power forward. I would go with Kenny Walker as my three, but I'm definitely having Winston Bennett on that team as a backup forward. And I was a big-time Charlie Hurt fan. I love yeah. Charlie Hurt. Yeah. So, um, 
those would be my forwards. Um, you know, the, the point guard discussion is interesting because Dirk Minifield is Kentucky's all-time assist guy, played in the NBA. Um, definitely should be there. I love Ed Davender. I agree with you. I love Roger Harden. Roger wasn't a big scorer, but his job was to facilitate and be oh, an yeah. assist guy, and he was just great at that. Um, I mean, you got to have Chapman at two there. I guess if you're having a backup, you go with Jim Master, but, um, you know, Rex is definitely a, ahead of Jim there. Um, you know, we had James Blackman, but Jack, James Blackman was a guy that he really didn't pan out like I thought he was going to pan out because he and Bennett came in in 83 and they were like, I think, number two, number three ranked guys in the country. And James is a good athlete, but he, he wasn't really the big time scorer. But uh, right. I think we hit the big ones there. I mean, one could argue and say, well, Kyle Macy is technically an 80s guy because he graduated on that 79 80 team. But I really think of him more as a 70s guard. So I would put him in on the 70s squad with Jack Givens and Phillips. And yeah, he, he's, he's a 70s guy for me, too. I agree with you on that one. Yeah. All right, going to the 90s. What's your – Okay, let's start, at, let's start at point guard, and this one's tough. Yeah. you got three really, really good choices, uh, Travis Ford, Anthony Epps, and Wayne Turner, okay? Mm-hmm. And I love all three of those guys, but if you say, okay, you got to – you have to pick one. But we don't have to now. You can have a roster of up to 12, so you can have some backups here. Well, I think I'm, you got to do that. Okay, I'm going to limit myself to the to the starting five. Oh, man, that's tough. Self-imposed limitation here. That's I, tough. I'm going to go with Epps. Just I, because I agree. He is uh, He's a winner. Um, I, I like his shooting ability over Wayne Turner. Agreed. Turner may have been a little, a little bit faster, but uh, Epps had him beat on the shooting department. Um, he's not as good of a shooter as Travis Ford was, but Anthony Epps has Ford beat in quickness and height. So I think that's, that's an important, so I'm, I'm going with Epps as my starter. Yep. Two guard. I think that one's easy. It's, it's Tony Delp, TD, double zero, the Brownsville bomber. Yeah. Um, I think he's what still third on the uh, all time scoring list, third or fourth. Yeah. I think it's fourth. I may have passed him, but I, I can't remember, but yeah, I'm going with, I'm going with Delk as my two guard. Um, for my five, let's see here. Uh, let me think. Probably gonna have to go with a forward at five. Yeah. Well, let's let's come back to that one. Obviously, we're gonna put Mashburn on that on the nineties team. Yep. At the three. We'll, we'll put him at small forward. Uh, well, or you could put him at power forward. It depends on how you want to go. He's a forward. Let's do let's do Mashburn at the three, just because mm-hmm. of shooting ability. Let's do Antoine Walker at the four, mm-hmm. and um, let's put McCarty at the five as a stretch five. All right. I think that's my. I think that's my starting five. So you're leaving off Ron Mercer and Derek Anderson. Re- begrudgingly, I mean they're they're one and two off the bench. They're one and yeah. two off the bench, but that's that's yeah. my starting five. Yeah, I think the only change I would have made, I I would definitely have McCarty on my team. Um, I think maybe I would have gone with Antoine at center and have Mashburn as the four and then Mercer as the three. But, I mean, to, to try to get five from the 90s is so tough because, you know, you, you don't have – Derek Anderson was just such a great player in the, in the 96 team. When he was on the show, he's like, look, I can't go and score 20 points a game because Tony needs his shots. Antoine needs his shots. You, you had McCarty needed his shots, so he needed, needed to have his role. But then – that 97 team, he was averaging like 20-something points a game before he hurt his knee. 
And I still think to this day, I mean, he, he was ready to go in that championship game against Arizona, but the team oh, yeah. just didn't want to play him because if he got hurt, <clears throat> he loses out on a lot of money in the NBA. But, I mean, really, we should have won three titles in a row. Um, I don't think Shepard gets to the level of a starter. He was a very good player, but he definitely would be a reserve in the shooting guard era. Um, I like to mention Scott Padgett. He's not in the top five there, but, you know, you think about the great Kentucky players of the 90s, he's definitely up there and hit some big shots. So he could, he was tough inside. He could go um, on the outside with his jump shot. Uh, and and Nazi Muhammad had some good years for us. Yeah. So they wouldn't make my top five, but if I had like a 12-man roster, they'd, they'd be up there. So Roderick Rhodes didn't make the team. <laughs> Yeah, he he had a he had some good years and just didn't work out. But that's the thing now. You know, you talk about Roderick Rhodes and the expectation when he came out, he was playing so well and uh, with Mashburn against Louisville and Dick Vitale's like, oh, it's the king and the prince. And now as Kentucky fans, when Calipari brings in this class, our expectations are through the roof on these guys. And Believe me, if we had Roderick Rhodes on this year's team, I mean, Roderick would have scored 25 points a game. Yeah. So, all right, so we're going to the 2000s. Uh, so, what's your starting five there? Okay, so this one's a little bit easier just because Agreed. Agreed. the talent pool's not as uh, deep as it was in the 90s. So, uh, point guard, I think, is easy. you got to go with, with Rondo. Uh, mm-hmm. Rondo from a yep. point guard. I think two guard is – Pretty well settled, too. I'm going with Bogans as my two guard. Um, Prince is my three. Tayshia mm-hmm. is my three. Uh, Estel is my four. Marquise Estel is my five. My five I'm sorry. Yep, I agree there. Estel is my five. And then what, am, what do I need here? I need a for, uh, forward. I'm going with, even though it's later on in the decade, you may think of him as a, as a Cal player in the tens and up, but I'm going with Patrick Patterson because he's had two years in the, in 08 and 09 with us. So that's my starting five for the 2000s. Yep. That's good. I mean, <clears throat> I was <clears throat> looking through this last night. and um, so I, I probably would have had Chuck Hayes somewhere in my starting five. I may have put him at four, but um, I was I thought about Patrick Patterson because he was really good. I mean, um, uh, so that, that's a good pick there. So you can make Chuck Hayes your sixth man. Yeah, I, I love Chuck Hayes. Uh, I mean, he reminded me a lot of Charlie Hurt. You know, both had forty-four on the yeah. jersey. Chuck Hayes and Patrick Patterson. I mean, you, I don't think you can go wrong with either one of them. Yeah, and I think Estel's definitely your five. You know, Estel was a really good player. I mean, yeah. um, really good player. So, no, uh, no qualms there. Uh, glad Joe Crawford and Ramel Bradley didn't make the team. I mean, <laughs> they they were about all. Luckily, Patterson had some help there, but. Um, you know, they didn't really pan out, but shoot, those late 2000s teams, I mean, the talent pool just was not there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier before going on the air, though, about Jody Meeks. He had a big scoring year that one year, 25 points a game with Patterson. But I, I wouldn't take Fitch over him. I will say I'm, – I'm sorry, uh, I wouldn't take him over Bogans. But Gerald Fitch, uh, he would probably get an honorable mention for me, especially if I had a 12-man roster. Um, you know, in that 2014, uh, Eric Daniels played pretty yeah. well. Yeah, um, really good interior passer. Yeah. So, uh, all right, now we're going to go the 2010s, the the Cal era. So, what's your okay. starting five there? So, five is tough. 
Five's tough. I'm going to probably be a little unconventional here with my starting point guard. I'm going to go with Brandon Knight over John Brand- Wall. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I, 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 really, I just love Brandon Knight. I mean, he, he came in. He was a super smart kid. Uh, he was – I remember all the stories, Cal talking about how serious he was with his academics. And, yeah. And he was a smart basketball player too. And a better shooter than Wall. Yeah, and I, I'm giving I'm giving him my starting nod over Wall. Nothing against John Wall. I mean, I don't have anything against John Wall. He would definitely be my my number two. Uh, but the shooting ability is is what I give Brandon Knight a little bit of a bump over Wall. I, I just like people who can shoot the ball. I just like yeah. and Brandon Knight in his one year with us had a lot of really good shooting guard uh, moments or, mm-hmm. or shooting moments. You know, he he hit the game winner against Ohio State. Had that great game against Louisville at, at the at the Yum Center. Mm-hmm. Was uh, I think he played a great game against North Carolina in the Elite Eight. Um, unfortunately, it didn't translate into the having a good game at the Final Four. But I really like Brandon Knight. My two guard. I'm going with one of my favorite Cal players, and that's D Lamb, Deron Lamb. Boy, you talk about a knockdown shooter. There you go. He's got he's, and he also has the greatest autograph of any UK player of all time. Have you ever seen mm-hmm. his autograph? Mm-hmm. It's a. It looks like uh, somebody. It looks like your third grade uh, grammar teacher uh, would would say D Lamb. I mean, it's it's it's. You got to Google it when we get off here and see what mm-hmm. Duran Lamb's autograph looks like. But yeah, I love Duran Lamb. Uh, he, I just love the guy. I mean, he, he was a little bit eccentric, but I mean, you talk about any time that Kentucky needed a needed a score, put it in Duran Lamb's hands, and he's going to get the basket. That's just the yeah. way he was. So that's my that's my starting backcourt. He left after his sophomore year because he was on that 2012 team, right? Yeah. yeah. See, and and guy like a guy like him, that's where I get so irritated with Calipari and this one and done where he pushes him out. Because Deron Lamb, he was a great shooter, but he was smaller. And so his ability to succeed in the NBA was tougher. I'm like, he would have been a perfect guy for three and or four years. Yeah. And I think his stock would have gone up because I mean that guy was money. Yep. Um for my center, I'm I'm gonna I gotta go with A D, I gotta go with Davis. Yep. Because yep. he he was a game changer. I mean, he was there's just nobody nobody like him. I mean, uh Carl Anthony Towns, fantastic player, Demarcus Cousins, fantastic player. But Davis was just somebody that's kind of a once in a generation talent. So you, you gotta put Davis in there at the five. So we've got the starting backcourt, we've got our center, we need a three and a four. Um so and this, this again comes down to, I guess, maybe just who I like the best. Not necessarily who was the best player, but uh, he had a heart, heart of gold. He was a warrior. Michael K. Gilchrist is going to be my four. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he didn't pan out in the NBA like we had all thought he would, but, I mean, he was just a workhorse. Uh, and I, I just love that guy. I give him a, a slight edge over Jones, Terrence Jones. He'd probably mm-hmm. be more second off of that uh, – on that uh, 2010s teams, um, so we we need a uh, we need a three, right? Yep. Or if you even want to go with another guard, there, big guard or something. Let me think. I guess we could go with a with a big guard, uh, another shooting guard, maybe. And let's see, Monk or Murray. Uh, I think I'd go Jamal Murray. Yeah, that I guy was a bad guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd go Murray. So let's go with Knight, Lamb, 
Murray, Gilchrist, and Davis. The only change I think I would make on that is I would make Carl Anthony Towns my four because a lot yeah. of times he played a four with Willie Colley Stein being the center. Um, I agree. I would not. I would not have picked John Wall for my uh, for my point guard. And really, to be honest with you, I would take Tyler Eulis over him. Now I know in the NBA, Tyler Eulis is not going to have the same career because he was small. But you talk about one of the greatest floor generals ever at Kentucky since we've been alive, and Tyler Eulis is up there. He's a yeah. better shooter. I mean, John Wall was very good as a freshman, but he wasn't a very good shooter. He was more just the drive. Um, I wouldn't take Cousins over Davis. Uh, I thought Cousins was just so big and awkward in there. It was it was weird. Um, watching him in his offense, but he, in the NBA though, I mean, he was a beast and learned to shoot. Um, Julius Randle, I probably would not take him over Carl Anthony Towns, but he was fantastic for us. Um, I don't think PJ Washington gets to that level. Oh, the point guard though, De'Aaron Fox, that's another one I would take over John Wall. I love De'Aaron Fox. And when we were talking about our greatest memories, when we, when Kentucky played UCLA, and UCLA had Lonzo Ball. I was so up for that game, and De'Aaron Fox just took it to Lonzo Ball because, of course, his dad, LeVar Ball, had been talking trash, and that was one of my favorites. And, of course, I, I love that team because you had Monk and uh, Bam out of Bayou. Derek Willis was on that team. So that, that was one of my favorites. But, I mean, yeah, De'Aaron Fox was great. And, two, some people forget that was a that was a payback game because they had, yes. played, they had played in Rupp Arena that – that earlier that season, I was actually at that game. Yeah. And UCLA beat us. And yeah. Lonzo Ball was running around Rupp Arena like a you know what. And I hated him ever since. So that was that was a big payback game. Yeah. So um, I mean, I, I did like Tyler Hero, but I don't think, you know, when these guys are there for one year, it's like it's kind of hard to to compare them when you're talking about all right. Is Anthony Davis, is he better than Mashburn? I would never say that. I would never say he's better than Sam Bowie. I would never say he's better than Cotton Nash or Dan Issel. Had he stayed two or three years? Well, yeah, because, you know, Anthony Davis has turned into one of the best NBA players ever. But it's kind of hard for me to to judge these guys outside of their era yeah. because it's only one year of, of judgment. And you can say, well, you know, Anthony Davis had a better freshman year than Melvin Turpin or Sam Bowie. Well, maybe that's true, but, um, you know, I don't know. And that's, that's the thing I get upset with with Kentucky basketball now, but I understand that. Well, our picks are pretty close. I tell you what, um, we've had some good Kentucky teams there. Now, let me ask this. If you were playing your teams, the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, what, what team do you think wins out? Uh, the, I, I'm going to go with my '90s team. I would too. Yeah, I still think the '90s Kentucky team um, that that team would beat anybody since we've been alive. I mean, because because my '90s team, you're basically talking about putting Mashburn on the '96 team, and that's mm-hmm. to me that's that's an unbeatable basketball team. I mean, yeah. there's there's no team. I mean, you could put an all star of an all 90s Duke team together, it's not going to come close to beating that 96 team of Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I'd, I'd vote the exact same way. All right, next question. Who's your favorite U.K. basketball coach of all time and why? 
I'm going to go with Patino. Uh, I agree. Um, you know, there was a time when he was at Louisville where I couldn't stand him. You know, I, I was so mad when he took that job and he was just kind of a irritating little, you know what, while he was there. But I mean, heck, we beat him most of the year, so we can't really yeah. think about it. The man uh, needed a job. He needed a place to coach. Yeah. Boston, Boston didn't work out. But I mean, the guy's a winner. I mean, yeah. yeah, he's got personal problems like we all do. But I mean, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's another X's and O's coach or somebody who is into the game as much as he is. I mean, he, yeah. he's, he's one of the best modern day basketball coaches around. There's no, you got, you got to give him credit. And he, he brought Kentucky back out of mm-hmm. and we should all be grateful for that because the success we're having now is we can tie that back to him. So, well, and I think the other thing too, um, he got Kentucky back on top sooner than what we thought. I mean, think about that team that we had with Reggie Hanson as a senior. And it was Reggie Hanson, Darren Feldhouse, Pelfrey, Farmer. I think Sean Woods is on that team. Brasso is a freshman. And they technically won the SEC that year. And I remember we had to watch all those games on tape delay. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, Reggie Hanson's a, a UK guy that when they're talking about the greats, he's sometimes overlooked, but he was fantastic. And I love Feldus, uh, Feldhouse and Farmer. I still to this day in that Duke game, when I met Patino, I so wanted to ask him why you didn't put Darren Feldhouse on the ball on that inbounds pass with Grand Hill because Feldhouse was so good at getting that five-second count. But I just – I couldn't bear to do it. I just thought it would be an awkward scenario. And yeah. He was a client at the time too, so I was like on a real estate matter. So I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to – I just want to get out and get my bill paid. Yeah, exactly. But, um, no, I agree with Patino. And, but he got the most out of those guys. And I think if I was picking my favorite U.K. team, it would be that 91-92 team. Because I feel like that it sends such a message to so many people that you're kind of an underdog scenario or people don't expect you to do this and you succeed. And, and you're right, going into that Duke-Kentucky game, I remember my algebra teacher was Howard Beth, who is the girls' coach, and he and I talked a lot of basketball. And, of course, his son Aaron was playing at Vanderbilt at the time, and so we'd kind of go back and forth. But I, I remember telling him, I'm like, I just hope that when we play Duke, it's just a respectable loss. I had no expectations of winning that game. And like you said, we were in it and kept going. And I mean, we were, we really should have won the game, but I mean, nobody expected that. So when we lost on that last second shot, it was just crushing. So yeah, Patino is always going to be my favorite UK coach. I mean, I like Joby Hall too. And, but um, I, I just like the offense that Patino brought in the fast pace and the shooting. Yeah. All right. Now to some bad stuff here. Um, so 2021 was the worst Kentucky basketball team in over 100 years. How does John Calipari turn things around for 2022? Because we're not going to stand for this for another year. Well, I think it comes down to uh, – it may sound weird for me to say this. I think it comes down to changing his recruiting philosophy. I agree. Because you, I, I look at um, I look at Boston and I look at Clark and I look at Askew, and okay, these are our three guards that you brought in this year, and I want to say, did you actually see them play before you offered them a scholarship? Because mm-hmm. I can't believe that they were that good in high school and this bad in college. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the day and night difference just doesn't make sense to me. So if you if you had spent any time at all really watching tape, 
and not just watching mixtape highlights. I think maybe you could have seen some red flags in their games because Boston can't shoot, and he's he's the number two shooting guard in the country. He shot thirty percent this year. How does that happen? I mean, you you have to recruit people who can shoot the ball, yeah. especially if you're going if they're going to be your guards. Yes, and, and I'm just I'm just so sick and tired of these guys that come in uh, on mixed based on mixtapes, and when it comes down to it, they can't shoot the ball. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're going to have a three and a four maybe that doesn't have a good outside shot every now and then, but for your guards, you've got to have somebody that can make baskets. I mean, you've got to have a Devin Booker, you've got to have a Deron Lamb. Mm-hmm. These this day and time, I think you're going to have to have some guys that stick around. If you look at the 2012 team, Lamb was a two-year player. Uh, Miller Terrence, was a four-year guy. Jones Terrence was Jones. Yeah, Jones was a two-year guy. Um, so you had you had experience on that team, and then of course you had all-world Anthony Davis. Yeah, he helped, but you still had experience on the team. <laughs> um, and on the 15 team that almost went undefeated, you had the Twins. They were they were sophomores. Um, Ulysses was uh, he was a freshman. Uh, let's see who else was had experience on that. Really, Collie Stein was a junior. Really, Collie Stein was a uh, junior. Um, Alex Patterson was hurt. Um, not Alex Patterson. Uh, who am, who am I talking about? Uh, he got hurt. Um, yeah, no, that's that. Uh, Poitras. Alex Poitras. Yeah, Alex Poitras. Uh, he was he got hurt during that year, I believe, but he was still a veteran guy for that team had some experience. So, I mean, you, you gotta have, you gotta have a mixture. You can't have, and it's, it's caught up with him. I mean, and this year, if you look at a lot of the teams that struggled, a lot of the blue bloods that struggled, it's because, uh, you know, they didn't have time to, to work together before the season started. And it was, it was just a, it's just a disaster and all, yeah. all points failure, all systems failure. I think to be honest with you, it's amazing that Calipari has had the success he's had. Uh, I mean, we've had all of these really good teams and I mean, he's done a good job of getting the teams to mesh by the end of the year, but just from a fan's perspective and, and I know Calipari will, uh, I'm not saying he's a bad coach. I think he's a good coach because take all these new personalities and mesh them into a team. And especially that 2015 team where you had, like, I think Carl Anthony Towns only averaged 11 points a game because you had to get shots for everybody. So to manage the egos and the, play a together mentality and you know I don't hear any issues about the guys getting in trouble off the court uh, and stuff so I think he's bringing in seems like good quality people but um, as a fan though you don't have the bond I don't have the bond with the players of the Calipari generation that I do with the guys from the 90s and especially the 80s and it's because they're not there I it takes me half the year to figure out who they are can they really play because if someone says they're a McDonald's All-American, I'm like, well, that doesn't mean jack squat to me. I need to see what they can do on the court. And then by the time you get into it around the SEC uh, schedule, well, then they're here and gone. And I know it's like like Anthony Davis. All right. If you have a chance to be the number one pick in the draft, I have no problem with that guy going because there's a lot of money on the table that's guaranteed. You know, I, I understand. But for a guy like um, Terrence Clark to leave and he played like eight games, he came back after his ankle injury. He scored, I think, two points in our SEC game against Mississippi State. And he's leaving. I'm like, yeah, you know, he wasn't really a fit. And 
It's like if you are going to go and you might be a first round pick, you might be a second round pick. Why are you leaving college basketball? You should be like dominating in college before you go to the NBA. Yeah. And I don't have a problem if players get stipends or something. I mean, that's a whole big discussion for, I guess, another day. But, um, and I understand the money standpoint, but it's like Derek Anderson and Tony Delk were saying it's like, if you've been poor all your life, um, what's another six months if you come back and improve your game and your stock? And yeah. So we'll see. I know Cal's not happy about it. The fans aren't happy about it. And there's a lot of pressure on him to deliver in 2022. All right, final UK basketball question. Um, UK has many great rivalries and hated opponents. We've talked about a few of them. Who are your top 10 most despised UK opponents, either players, coaches, or even entire programs? And let's say you name a program that begins with a D and ends it with an E. You can name that program and also mention a player. All right. <clears throat> let's do 10 here. So <laughs> Christian Leitner's on the list. Yeah. Before I, I got to interrupt you on that, I heard a rumor. Uh, it's a Marshall County rumor, so the chances of it being true are uh, probably it's not true. That Christian Leitner was driving through Marshall County and broke down, and something like that. He did something, got arrested, and I never heard if that was true or not. I, I'm guessing it's false. I've I've never heard that before. So okay, must all just, right, yeah, all right. I figured. All right, well, Christian Leitner is definitely on the list. Yeah, so Leitner's on the list. Um, Duke, obviously. Well, I'm, I'll tell you what. I'm going to do my – I'm going to do some hated programs first. Okay. Uh, my, And this is kind of my hi- hierarchy of hate. And so my hierarchy of hate includes at the top most hated level is Duke, Louisville, and North Carolina, and Kansas. Yeah, I hate Kansas. A little bit, little bit below the other three, but those are my four. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grams. Um, Indiana hasn't been good in decades. Uh, they would yeah. all, they're also on my list. Um, and then Tennessee's on there too, even though they're not really known for basketball, still hate them. Uh, we're obviously going with uh, Christian Leitner. Let's see. Um, Dwayne Schentz is from the 80s on that Florida team. Yes. Yeah. I remember him. <laughs> yeah. Can't stand him. Um, J.R. Reed from North Carolina in the 80s. Uh, yeah. really like like him at all. Um, let me see here. Um, let's find some Louisville player. Oh, Francisco Garcia. I did, I just didn't like Francisco Garcia from those mm-hmm. Louisville teams. Um, Edgar Sosa from Louisville. Yeah. Always kind of a little, little gnat, little annoying little ant. Um, and then, uh, who was the, uh, 2013 MOP for Louisville? Uh, he was a he was a transfer. He transferred in, had that big hit a bunch of shots. Um, um shooting guard. Gosh, I'm trying to I, I forgot who it was. Um Smith, Russ Smith. No. Um they had that Luke Luke guy with the beard. Uh yeah, Luke. Luke uh what was his last name? I forgot what his name was. I know you're talking about though. He wore the undershirt underneath his basketball jersey. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't stand that guy. Um, let me think. Uh, Ron Slay from Tennessee. Yes, I wanted to make sure he was on the list. I despise yeah. Ron Slay. Yeah. Uh, what was it? What was the shooting guards from Tennessee? From Russell Lofton. Tony Smith was that his name? 
Um, it was Chris Smith, I think, wasn't it? There was Tony White, who was a point guard from the 80s. Yeah, this this guy was from the early 2000s. I, I thought his name was Tony Smith. Tony something. Because he had Tony the Tiger, I think, as a tattoo. But I can't remember what his name Golly, I can't even remember. I remember Ron Slay, though. I didn't like Ron Slay. Okay, let me think here. Some uh, annoying SEC players over the years. Well, when, when he was at LSU, I didn't like Shaq or Chris Jackson. Yeah, those are good ones. And I wasn't a fan of Charles oh. Barkley or Char- or Bobby Lee Hurd either. How can we forget Joe Kim Noah? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I didn't like yeah. him either. I always yeah. liked Al Horford, but I didn't like Joe Kim Noah. Joe Kim Noah, you know, big thumbs down there. Well, I, I tell you, I didn't like those Arkansas teams that uh, Nolan Richardson had in the 90s where you had, like, Scotty Thurman and Corliss Williamson. Well, I I, I, I like Scotty Thurman just because – he, he was a he was a baller. He and he could shoot. He hit a lot of big shots. They're great players. I, I did not like Corliss Williamson though. Yeah, I'd have yeah. to. Yeah, Thurman didn't bother me. I didn't like. I did not like Big Nasty. Um, I never liked Samaki Walker from Louisville. Yeah. So that's that's probably so, ten, but that's that's some good good names there. Yeah. Cause, well, one coach that I didn't like growing up is Dale Brown from LSU. Yeah. Didn't yeah. like him. I did like Wimp Sanderson, though, from Alabama, because I always liked the plaid coat. I thought oh, yeah. it was kind of funny. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the thing is now, of all the teams in really the past few years, there aren't really any players that I dislike because it's like everyone's got to get along and nice and stuff. I'm like, so I don't really have any beef with anybody. I mean, I guess I didn't like Bruce Pearl for a while, but now I'm like, I'm kind of glad Auburn's got a good team because that's good for the SEC, but – he can get under your skin a little bit, but he's kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, gosh, there was somebody else I wanted to add to that list. Definitely, I didn't like Bobby Lee Hurt. Um, didn't like Shaq at LSU. Definitely Ron Slay. Um, gosh, I forgot who it was. Um, well, I didn't really hate Denny Crumb too much, but I didn't like Lancaster Gordon from Louisville, like in the early 80s. Um, didn't like, never liked Purvis Ellison. Uh, definitely didn't like Bobby Knight growing up and, um, that's, that's about it. Um, you know, oh, I know. I just hate Michigan state. I mean, what's this deal with Michigan state presented by what, um, some, some type of finance group. I mean, how's that even legal under the NSA rules? I mean, that's clearly sponsorship right there. Yeah. I mean, money coming in, that just seems illegal to me. Oh, Mateen Cleaves. That's what I didn't like. Mateen Cleaves. But uh, yeah, now everybody, we got to get along. And that's just how it is, I guess. Yep. So, all right. Now we're going to switch to Cardinal baseball. So, what made you a diehard Cardinals fan? Uh, exact same thing that made me a UK fan. Yep. Third generation. You know, grand, grandparents would listen to uh, Jack Buck and my, my dad and mom. My mom is uh, a UK basketball fan. She's not necessarily a, a um, Cardinals fan. She doesn't really care for baseball, but mm-hmm. growing up third generation, it was born into me. Uh, Dad was always watching it. So I watched it with him and mm-hmm. grew up loving them. So. Well, I tell you what, um, I've been to a lot of baseball games uh, and you know, the, the atmosphere in the crowd at St. Louis is, I mean, to me, St. Louis, uh, going to Wrigley Field at the Cubs. I mean, those are the best atmospheres. I 
I've not been to Wrigley or I've not been to um, Boston to see the Red Sox play or Yankee Stadium. I'd like to see those atmospheres. But man, for so many years living in Miami, you go to a game and there the atmosphere is just dead. And yeah. it's just kind of hard when you're used to going to the Cardinal games and the, the pride we put in the team there. So um what so what's your outlook for our season this year? Because we got Nolan Arenado to play third. I mean, that's a big upgrade for us at third base. So I'm hoping we're gonna have a good year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to be um, – I, I think we'll be favored to win our, our division, um, mainly because everybody else in the division isn't, isn't that good. I mean, if you look at you look at the rosters on the other teams that we're going to be playing, the Cubs have done a, a fire sale. The Reds lost mm-hmm. talent from what they had last year. The Pirates, I don't think, are going to be much different than the team they had last year. Uh, who else am I missing? All the Brewers. Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. So I, I think we should probably win our division. Um, last year, obviously, we had major problems offensively. Yeah. So Arenado is a huge, huge pickup. Mm-hmm. Much difference he can make uh, being just one addition to the lineup. Uh, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. So he's going to provide some uh, – putting him in the lineup next to Goldschmidt, having those back-to-back is going to help both of those players, I think. Um, yeah. You, who, who is your third guy to protect them? You know, I think that question's still up in the air. Tyler O'Neill's had a really good spring training. Yes, he has. Uh, we've got Paul DeYoung can mm-hmm. pop too. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And then if you look at the, look at our starting pitching and the bullpen, we've got lots of really good young arms mm-hmm. that, who have a lot of talent. Yeah. So I, I think the I think the pitching for us is going to be good for a long time, and then you've got uh, Wayno for at least one more year, kind of being the the granddad, the mentor for all those young pitchers. Mm-hmm. Yachty uh, calling calling the pitches for all these young pitchers. So I'm I'm expecting good things out of out of the team. Uh, how competitive we can be if we make the playoffs against teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and some of the high payroll guys. Uh, that remains to be seen. But, yeah, uh, I, th- I think we'll certainly be competitive. Yeah, I, I'm hoping for a good year too. Um, I'm kind of glad we were able to trade Dexter Fowler away. I know we're paying a bunch of his salary, but we're kind of at a point with uh, like O'Neill and Dylan Carlson and uh, Lance Thomas. We got to see what they can do. Yeah. I do like Lance Thomas. I hope he can stay healthy. And Bader, I mean, I think this is a huge year for Bader. He's really got to be consistent on offense because he's got the glove, but I mean, he can't go up there and bat 212 or 215. I just want to see players. I just want to be able to turn on the TV and pretty much know who's going to be playing. One of my biggest complaints with Schilt the past two years is that I don't think he gave anybody a chance to get into any kind of rhythm because the line Mm -hmm. is different every night. And baseball is one of those team, one of those games over the course of, you know, six months, 162 games, You've got to have some. You got to be in there day in day out and get some consistency. Get a routine going. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can come in and play two games a week and and perform at the level yeah. that they that they are capable of performing. So I just hope we get some consistency in the lineup. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I'm excited for it, especially coming off a bad Kentucky year. I, I need a good Cardinal baseball year. Oh yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, um, one of the things of, with baseball that I love too is uh, I have the MLB app because down in Florida, I don't, I don't always get the Cardinal games on TV. I mean, you can get the video version through the MLB, but I love listening to baseball on the radio. And uh, John Rooney does the the broadcast along with Mike Shannon, but they're really good. And 
you mentioned growing up with Jack Buck. I mean, you know, the Cardinals have always had some really good radio announcers. And, and so I enjoy listening to those games on the, on the radio. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so let's talk about some of your top fa- uh, moments from the Cardinal baseball history. So what are your uh, top 10 most memorable, memorable moments from Cardinal baseball? And they can also be good or bad. <clears throat> okay. So probably one of my earliest memories was the go crazy game. Yep. Uh, with Ozzie uh, Smith, Homer, Ozzie Smith, um, so that was game six, I believe. No, game five. Game mm-hmm. five. I remember I was I think I was at my granddad's house watching that one, I'm pretty sure. So I remember watching that one. And then the next very next game, uh, again off Tom Needenfuhr, uh, Jack Clark hits the yes, that big home run in Dodger Stadium. Yep. So that that put us in the World Series. And then I guess you might call this a bad moment. Vince Coleman gets run over by the tarp. Yes. Oh my gosh. And and then we have the the play at first base. Don Dinger, you're missing that on George yeah. Horta. Yes. And so, and I think before that, they had missed a pop-up that should have been caught. I think Daryl Porter and J- uh, Jack Clark got mixed up on a pop-up. And yeah. The Dinkinger play should have been the second out, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, mm-hmm. that was just a total heartbreaker. Um, let's see. Tom Lawless hitting the home run and – uh, game four yes. of the World Series. You know, in 87, yes. Yeah. And then uh, you kind of fast forward through most of the 90s because there wasn't a whole lot really to talk about. But uh, you get into the Mark McGuire, the home run chase of 98. You know, that's got a asterisk beside it, but it was still fun at the time. And Sure was. I, I kind of look back at it as, okay, yeah, Mark McGuire was cheating. He was using PEDs, but – so was everybody else. So, I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you single him out and make mm. him one when everybody else was doing the same thing? It's kind of like Lance Armstrong and the Tour de France. I mean, okay. Yeah. He probably was aided by the PEDs, but everybody else in the race was using them too. I mean, I mm. think in the top 10 and every one of his races was, was found to be doping. So, you know, um, you know, it's, it is what it is, but, um, so the, the big home run chase of McGuire and Sosa and then uh, get into the, the really good La Russa years of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So 2006, I was there. Uh, well, let me back up. 2004, I was there when we won the pennant against um, Houston. I was there for the last game of uh, the old Bush Stadium, Bush Stadium 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, Astros beat us in game six. So that was the end of the era for that stadium. I was also at the first game of the new Bush Stadium opening. Mm-hmm. Day. I remember Pujols hit a monster home run against the Brewers in the bottom of the first inning. And it, it almost left the ballpark. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a monster home run. So I was so happy to be able to be there. Uh, my cousin, Jeremy Rose, we graduated together. He and I were at game seven of the 2006 World Series. Got to see him win out that game. Was yeah, also, David Freeze homers. Yeah. I was also at a game. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. He was 11. Sorry, he was 11. Uh, game three where Carpenter pitched that duel. So I went to two World Series games in 06, including the clincher. And then 2011, um, I was at game seven So uh, with my dad. So I got to see that. And then, I mean, who, goodness, who can forget game six of the 2011 World Series? That's the greatest baseball game I've ever seen. 
Yeah, that was the David Freeze homers, right? Yeah, that was, yeah. was just so many ups and downs through that game. I yeah. Mean, it looked like Texas was going to win, then we came back, then Texas is back up again, and then down to our last strike two different times. And, oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, I was on the floor at, when we – when. Freeze hit that last home run to win the game. I I was on the floor, just uh, basically an emotional wreck. Mm-hmm. So I'll never. That's the greatest baseball game I've ever seen. So lots and lots of great Cardinal memories. Yep. Yeah, I know. And uh, I guess one that you didn't mention that I'll never forget is uh, the 2005 NLCS. Albert Pujols hits that home run off of Brad Lidge at Houston. It literally goes out of the stadium. I mean, yeah. And I still think that 2005 – well, we won it in 2006. I still think that our 2004 team was probably better than 2006. And that 2005 team was good, too. I mean, Albert Pujols was the best player on the planet during that period. And that was yeah. some fun Cardinal baseball. He yeah. had, you know, Roland, Jim Edmonds, Eckstein. I mean, I love Chris Carpenter. I mean, he's a he's a warrior. Yeah. So, all right, a lot of good memories from the Cardinal uh, – baseball era all right so if you're picking your all-time cardinals team i'll give you the option you can pick two players at every position so you have a starter and reserve as far as in the field a starting five and three bullpen guys and a manager or if you just want to pick your starting um positions and your, your pitchers with a starting five and then three bullpen guys that's fine it's just there are so many good Cardinals. I, I always have to pick a starter and a reserve. So this is all time, all right? So not yeah, all time. So you can go back to the nineteen thirties and forties if you want. Okay. Okay. So let's start at catcher. My um, starting catcher. Um, let's do two teams. Let's do yeah. Two, you can have a starter and reserve. Teams. Yep. So tough call here with catcher on who's number one and who's number two, but I guess I'll go with Ted Simmons. He was a great catcher. And I, I hate to do it to Yachty. I mean, because I, I, I love Yachty so much. I mean, it's hard to pick between them two. Actually, I'm going to change. I'm going to go with Yachty. Yeah. Uh, Yachty's my man. Um, I never saw – I never can really remember Ted Simmons' best years. But I'm going to go with Yachty at my starting catcher. Ted Simmons is <laughs> my backup. Um, let's see. Let's go to third base. So, let's do uh, Kenny Boyer is my mm-hmm. – Third baseman, uh, Roland is my backup. Yep. Uh, shortstop, Ozzy, of course, is my number one. Probably going to go Renteria as number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go over to second base. He played for a lot of teams, but he's he's a you know one of the greatest baseball players of all time. So I'm going to go Rogers Hornsby as my yeah. second baseman. Um, and big drop off here between Rogers Hornsby and my second one, but I, I love the guy Tommy Herr from North Yes, North. yes, yep. yep. So that's why I would put him. Too. Yep, want to put him number two. So that moves us over to first base. So obviously Albert is number one at first base, mm-hmm. and may I guess maybe Jack Clark, but he wasn't. I mean Jack. Let me pull up. I had this. Let me get my cheat sheet out here. I need to look at this. Well, when it comes to first baseman, it's kind of interesting because you got Mark McGuire who had some major years, but then it's like, well, how do you want to vote with him based on the steroid use? Jack Clark was only there for three years. He had a good year in 85, a great year in 87, but 86, he was hurt a lot. But you go back to the 60s and you had like Orlando Cepeda with those teams with like Bob Gibson and Lou Brock. You got uh, Bill White. 
I think um, even going back to the thirties, like Johnny Mize, but you know, those guys played before we were around. You got Keith Hernandez. Yeah. And Joe Torrey played some first base with them too. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Base too. So I guess I'm going to go McGuire. Um, I mean, there's a, there's an asterisk there, but you know, it is what it is. He, he provided a lot of great moments and he, he's admitted to it. He's apologized and you know, it is what it is, but I'll go with McGuire as my second there. So we got to fill out an outfield now. Um, that's a, this is a hard one right here. Yeah, this is going to be hard. So let's go with, uh, obviously we've got Musial in the outfield. Mm-hmm. And he can play left or right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go at center. I love you, Jimmy, but Willie McGee is my man. Yep. I'm going to go with Willie McGee. Jimmy Edmonds is coming off the bench set on my second team there in center. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do uh, let's do right field. Let me get my cheat sheet here. Um, I'm going to go Enos Slaughter for number, number one in right field. He's a good pick. Uh, number two in right field. Let's go with – I'm going to put Lonnie Smith in right field. Lonnie Smith in right field as my second after Slaughter. So I need a that that does me. I need one more outfielder, right? Yeah, one more left fielder. Uh, who? How could I forget Lou Brock? I know. I was gonna say. I was like, yeah, you got to mention him. Yeah, so, I think the only change I would make. So I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna put Brock and have uh, Lonnie Smith second. So. Okay. Starting my starting outfield is Brock, Musial, McGee. Yep. All right. No, I'm with you there. That's that's what I would do too. And then so now I need some pitchers. Okay. So obviously Bob Gibson is my number one starting right-handed pitcher. He may not allow you to have a, another starting pitcher. He yeah. May just... <laughs> and for my number two starting right-handed pitcher, I'm going with the Bulldog, Chris Carpenter. Absolutely. Um, but 2000. Uh, 11 game five against the Phillies was one of the gutsiest pitching. Oh my gosh. That was amazing. Cause he was going so against Roy Halladay. I mean, that yeah. was a, that was a great, great game. So for my lefty, um, he didn't play all that long in St. Louis, but I mean, I'm going to go with Steve Carlton. I, I had him on mine and um, I'm going to go with the eighties again for my, for my number two lefty and John Tudor. So that's just because I really like John Tudor. Yeah. Uh, we need some bullpen guys now. Oh, wait, I think you got – let's see, you're starting five. So you had Bob Gibson, Chris Carpenter, Steve Carlton, uh, John Tudor. And who was your other one? I did I did two each, two, one, two righties, two lefties. Okay, so you're not going with a fifth? No. Okay. See, if I was going with a fifth, I would have gone with um, – I, I would have put Adam Wayne right on there. Yeah, yeah, that'd probably be mine too. I always like walking into hard too. So in the bullpen, I've got Eckersley, Lee Smith, and Bruce Suter. Yep. Yeah, I think so because I, I definitely wouldn't pick those guys over uh, or pick Jason Isringhausen over them. And, so. and if uh, 
I think I'd want to have Steve Klein in the bullpen just for personality, though. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, for three, that way he's my left-hander. But, you know, Steve Klein wearing that dirty Cardinal hat was just – it was always a pleasure to see him come in with that dirty hat. Yeah. And the only – I think the only change I may have made to your team – because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on almost all of them. I probably wouldn't have had Lonnie Smith there just because I, I was a big-time fan of uh, Vince Coleman. Yeah. And I like the idea of having in my lineup Coleman and, and McGee together. I definitely would have had Jim Edmonds yeah. uh, okay. on there. And I, I was thinking about Coleman before I got here, and I, I, for some reason I just forgot him. So I'm going with – I'm changing my mind. I'm going with Coleman over Lonnie Smith. Yeah. Yeah. And then the only other change I think I would make at shortstop is there was a shortstop in the 40s named Marty Marion. Yeah. He was a 1944 um, National League MVP. Of course, you know, this is our grandparents are watching this, but he was a great, great player. But, you know, it's kind of hard to go wrong because when you're talking Cardinal shortstops, it's Ozzy Smith by leaps and bounds among everybody else. Yeah. But, but Renneria had that big hit for us. Uh, he, he was a clutch player. Yeah. Good defensive guy. All right, so who, who's your manager? I'm going with Whitey. I agree. Yep. I love Whitey Ball. I love I love Tony Larusa. He won two championships for us, but uh, he also drove me crazy with his pitching changes. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. So I'm going with Whitey Herzog, and then Tony's going to be my my number one guy behind him. And of course, Dave Duncan's going to be my my pitching coach. He's yep. my all time pitching coach. So. And of course, Jack Buck will be the broadcaster on radio. Yep. Yep. So, all right. Well, final question. Um, who's your favorite car? What's your favorite Cardinal team of all time and why? I'm going to go with the 2011 team. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they were what 11 games out in late September. Mm-hmm. No. They were 11 games out in late August, I think. And then came back. They were they were three out with five to play, right? Something like that? I know it was just a tremendous comeback. Yeah. I mean, just totally out of the blue comeback. And then nobody gave us a chance against Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia was the overwhelming favorite, as best I can remember, to, to win the World Series that year. I mean, everybody yeah. in Philadelphia winning the World Series. And then Carpenter has that just a one nothing game in Philadelphia to shut out Philadelphia to win game five. And then we um, just manhandled the Brewers, really. I mean, they won a couple games, but um, I can remember just – it seemed like we were just scoring at will against the Brewers. Mm-hmm. And uh, games went to game seven against the uh, Rangers – and Pujols, of course, had the, the three home runs in game three at, at the Rangers Stadium. Um, uh, Carpenter had that diving uh, play at first base in game one. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, David Freeze's heroics in game six, along with Albert and Lance Berkman. I mean, Albert and Lance Berkman both had really huge hits late in that game, too. So there was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of key contributors uh, in that game six. And then I, I never forget that. Um, oh, who's the slugger that we had? That came Matt Holiday. Matt Holiday. I never forget him getting thrown out at third base 
mm-hmm. that game, and I was just so mad at him, and they took him out of the game after that. But uh, I don't know why I still remember that. But, yeah, I'm going with the 2011 team as my favorite team. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good pick. I mean, I, I remember, too, I guess we were playing the Washington Nationals. Maybe it was in the wild card or something. We had a huge comeback yeah. against them. That I definitely remember that. I guess if I was picking one of my favorite Cardinal, my favorite Cardinal team, I'd probably go with the 85 Cardinals just because I was getting to the age where I was old enough to kind of understand baseball I was playing. And I loved, you know, the, the double steals and you had Coleman and McGee doing double steals. And I loved Ozzie and the backflips and it, it was just a lot of fun. So I guess I'd go with that 85 team, but I, I mean, I love those teams with Pujols and Edmonds and the, 2000s uh they were great but uh the thing about it is you know the cardinals they they always are trying to field a team that wins that's what the cardinal fans expect it's kind of like the kentucky wildcat fans we we expect winning and uh so and growing up in our area it's just kind of like you can go up and talk to almost anybody about kentucky basketball or cardinal baseball and that's something i kind of like oh yeah yeah so well that concludes our discussion over living the dream, but this is the first time I've had a guest where I can talk this much about Kentucky basketball and Cardinal baseball. So it's a living the dream moment for me. And of course, Jason's doing a great job as County attorney of Marshall County. And um, you know, I'm really proud of all the accomplishments you've had there and all the praise that you're getting because it's well-deserved. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for your friendship over the years and for inviting me to be on the program. It was uh, been looking forward to it all week. So I think we had a good discussion. Hopefully nobody falls asleep at the wheel listening to this. So, Well, we, well, we probably get more listeners because they want to hear us talk about Kentucky basketball and Cardinal baseball. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed the episode of Living the Dream with my friend uh, Jason Darnell. And um, keep listening to our podcast. We're getting really good ratings and hope you guys are enjoying everything. And uh, Hopefully the Cardinals will have a great year and we'll stay in touch with everybody back on living the dream next week. Thanks a lot and have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at benandrodney.com and follow us on Instagram at benwilsonmiami.com.